Mog to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 53. I'm Nick Dixon here with Captain Belen Toby Young. And coming up, Rosine Murphy is cancelled, Gillian Keegan needs to check her mic, and Elon Musk sues the ADL, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. And sorry about that intro, Toby. If they didn't listen last week, they might just think I've insulted you for no reason, but it was a, a callback, guys. And I should also say, this is our one-year anniversary we started on the 7th of September last year, so 5th of September. It's as close as it's going to get. And do you want to reflect on the one year? Toby? I listened. I had a quick listen to the first ever episode, and it was, you know, we've improved massively. It was only 50 minutes as well, so we've extended massively. I mean, last week's was, what, two and a half hours. So we've extended time-wise, and we've improved so much. It's come so far, and we've done a whole year. I mean, what it flies by, doesn't it? It does fly by, yeah. I thought we'd started doing it maybe three months ago at most um (laughs) we definitely they definitely have got longer um i'm not quite sure why that is is that because it's become a bit more loosey-goosey and slightly less kind of uh rooted to topics and each of us kind of go off on tangents and are prone to extemporizing and generally taking it in weird directions or i don't know but i think we ought to try and bring it back back within the kind of 90 minute envelope if we can i've had someone tell me that um they listen to it while they go running and they've literally and they and they sort of to make their runs more interesting each week um they don't give themselves a set time they just run for the duration of the podcast and it's, it's killing them <laughs> to keep running it's <laughs> killing two and a half hours or it's massively improving their fitness <laughs> with our true. extended Good time I love, you've funny you said bring it back to within 90 minutes because our first topic is going to be roshi murphy who's saying bring it back Seeing it back. You remember. But yeah, we'll get onto that in a sec. But yeah, that is, well, we thank everyone that's listened and that, um, has donated and all the support. I mean, we're building massively. Our latest episode is one of our biggest ever. It's on course to perhaps be our biggest ever in terms of downloads. It has to be Tuck Off is the episode. It has to be. And that was a massive episode. And so, but, and there's some controversy over the numbers for that episode, whether they're actually the real numbers, but I, I they might be. But anyway, our latest episode is on course to win. So thank you to everyone listening. And some of, some of them have come over from London calling and we appreciate those. And I don't know, I guess we'll just carry on just grinding it out. I hadn't thought of it as a year either. We haven't prepared anything because we're just sort of grinding it out, not even thinking about it. I can't even, sometimes I can't even believe it's been a week between episodes. It feels like, you know, a couple of days. This is what happens when you get yeah. older, isn't it? But um, no, it just, yeah. Yeah. All right. So thanks to everyone listening. I think maybe when we get to 100 episodes, maybe we'll do something then. What do you think? Actually note it in some way. Maybe, yeah. Well, we should probably have, you know, um, a, another. We try, want to try and organise some more live recordings of the Weekly Skeptic, and certainly doing one on the hundredth episode will be a good one. That's um, a good idea. But I think we should we should probably do that before we get to that point. That's true. The only thing is, it might be on. I think you wanted to do Tuesday night, which is my football night, and now football season's back. There's only a slight problem with that, which is literally the only social thing I do, guys. But hey, who cares about my bleak life? Um, should we crack on and do the first subject then? Speaking of keeping it within 90 minutes. So Roisin Murphy was cancelled. Now this happened on the evening just after we recorded our last episode. So that's why we didn't cover it last week. But, it, but it's been a running story. So she is famously the singer from Maloko. I mean, I say, I say famously. I didn't make the name with the band until someone explained it. But they're a pretty famous band back in the day. And she basically had a little post on Facebook where she accidentally told the truth in a private Facebook post. She, you know, well, probably just on her private page, right? She said, please don't call me a turf. Please don't keep using that word against women. I beg you. But puberty blockers are effed, absolutely desolate. Big pharma laughing all the way to the bank. Little mixed up kids are vulnerable and need to be protected. That's just true. 
And that is just clearly true. But, of course, the world we're in now, this led to absurd amounts of attacks. And she got two gigs cancelled. And her record label refused to promote her album and agreed to hand the proceeds to pro-trans groups. But I think that happened a bit later. Toby will sort the sequence out. But she then had to issue this groveling apology, as the media calls it, where she says, I have been thrown into a very public discourse in an arena I'm uncomfortable in and deeply unsuitable for. I cannot apologize enough for being the reason for this eruption of damaging and potentially dangerous social media fire and brimstone. To witness the ramifications of my actions and the division it has caused is heartbreaking. I'll just read the next bit as well, because this is a really horrible bit. I've had a personal Facebook account for years. The morning I made these comments, I was scrolling and I brought up a specific issue that was only broadly related to the original post. It was something that had been on my mind. I knew my friends were informed about the topic. I should have known, too, that I was stepping out of line. I mean, that is the shocking sentence to me. And then she goes on about she's had a life celebrating diversity and blah, 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 blah. And she says she's going to step back from this and, you know, not talk about this kind of thing anymore. I will completely bow out of this conversation within the public domain. But the phrase stepping out of line was the most chilling to me. Toby, it's a classic thing, isn't it? I mean, never apologize. Why, why, why haven't we learned this yet? I know. Uh, I feel so sorry for Roisin. Um, uh, I mean, she should never have been attacked in the first place. It was a private conversation and um, her remarks were completely taken out of context. And as you say, uh, they were, they were you know, completely unobjectionable from a normal person's point of view, but the trans activists immediately um, uh, piled on. And um, she should have, she should have just stuck to her guns. Um, but instead she issued, you know, you've read it out um but i think to describe it as groveling is wrong i think it was um she didn't retract if you read it carefully she didn't retract her original remarks she apologized for the hurt they'd caused and you know the way other people had responded to them but she didn't actually retract them evidently you know there was some negotiation between her and her record company but she was doing it at the insistence of her record company presumably because she had you know, uh, a record, an album about to come out, and she didn't want to. Uh, she didn't want the record company to um, uh, to not release it. But after, I think the sequence was after she'd issued this apology, presumably at the behest of her record company. Her record company then announced um, that they weren't going to promote the album. They weren't going to spend any money on promoting it, and they were going to give any proceeds to trans charities that, that in itself is a slightly odd thing to say all the beneficiaries of album sales from our point of view will be trans charities and we're not going to do anything to promote it it's like well don't you want the charities to have the money i thought you did um <laughs> they hate trans but, people that's why they're on board with yeah, the comments because we want to starve the trans community of funds we're going to throttle the album that's funny yeah but it but it was it the upshot of the apology was i mean it didn't seem to do much to placate our record company it did nothing um, to placate the trans activists um, who were unhappy that she didn't retract her original remarks. And um, it just antagonised, you know, her potential allies um, amongst, uh, you know, the GC feminists. I think, uh, I don't know if you saw, but um, Kathleen Stock uh, tweeted, um, she didn't mention Rasheen by name, but she said, you know, celebrities, if you're going to say something in support of our side of the argument, don't then retract it 24 hours later and issue an apology for saying it because that's worse than not saying anything supportive at all. It makes the other side look all powerful. Yeah, um, uh, quite right. Um, but uh, the upshot is that she, you know, she's now she's now friendless. I mean, yeah, that's not quite true because you know Brendan O'Neill's written a good piece in in Spiked um, and 
we're obviously sympathetic and I'm sure lots of people are, are sympathetic, but she doesn't she doesn't have allies now in either camp. She's effectively alienated both camps. Brenda made this really good point, which is that this is effectively, you know, a witch hunt uh, and a witch hunt for the most part carried out by men. Um, and as you say, her remark about, um, you know, which she apologizes for stepping out of line for for, 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 for straying from her lane. Um, that's very revealing. And that's exactly the kind of thing that um, women were uh, persecuted for in, you know, um, uh, what, 18th century Salem. Um, I just went and saw The Crucible, actually. Took my daughter um, uh, earlier this week. Very good production. It was the last night, so other people can't see it. It was at the Gilgood. Um, but um, it was clear that um, you know, from the play, uh, which is based on you know a close reading of the documents in Salem about what happened during the witch trials, um, that often the women targeted um, for trial and in some cases public execution uh, were women who'd stepped out of line or women who had f- fallen outside the kind of boundaries of respectable 17th century, 18th century Massachusetts society. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, horrible. Feel sorry for her. Yeah. And once again, I find myself the feminist standing up for women against these bullies. I, I would actually say, Toby, she has retained allies on our side, because although that apology, when you see that is disappointing and kind of pathetic, then you look at the pressure she's under as just a woman, as a singer. I, I think she hasn't quite lost. It. I mean, Andrew Doyle did a brilliant monologue about it. As you say, we're supporting it. So I feel like she hasn't quite... Some some apologies are so pathetic that they kind of you, you, they do lose our side. But for some reason, I feel this one isn't quite in that bracket. I did, I think I initially thought it when I read it, but I think maybe I've in context it now seems I don't know. It just seems I don't know. Like you say, did she apologize for the comments? She actually said, "I'm so sorry. My comments have been directly hurtful to many of you. You must have felt a huge shock, blindsided by this so abruptly." I understand fixed views are not helpful. But I really hope people can understand my concern was out of love for all of us. So, yeah, she doesn't exactly say the comments were wrong. She says, I had concerns out of love. And she said, yeah, I see. She doesn't exactly retract the comments. She just sort of says she's sorry, upset people. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. You feel like she's all right and she's just stuck in this horrible thing. But everyone hates it now. And, you know, whether the tide concern, I don't know. But everyone certainly, well, there's been some interesting developments on that. I will just say briefly which I'll get into a sec, but Ninja Tune was the record label. I think it was Gareth Roberts shared a picture of them saying, I bet they're going to look like led by donkeys. And they did. They just look like kind of real sort of uh, classic sort of douchebags. So it's no, it's no surprise they threw under the bush. You could honestly, if you look at the picture of them, you'll be able to tell. But the thing I was going to say was that people are changing their minds on this to the point where Graham Linehan actually made up with John Boyne. Did you see that? Off, yeah, off so John Boyne... Yeah. Apologise to to Graham um, for having joined the pylon against him in 2020. Yeah, he'd written an article about him back in 2019, where he sort of, in Graham's words, threw him under the bus. He sort of said, you know, this, why is he getting involved in this trans debate? I've lost the exact quote now, but, but it, that was basically it. And then they had some, some back and forth. Graham said to him, get effed. And then he apologised and, and, and wrote this quite long apology to Graham Linehan. He says, in early 2019, when my 20th book, My Brother's Name is Jessica, was published, I wrote an article in the Irish Times where I criticized Graham Linehan's involvement in what is often called the trans debate. It's almost five years later, and during that time, he's criticized me many times, most recently in late August, when I supported the singer Roisin Murphy, who was attacked for daring to suggest that vulnerable, sexually confused children need to be protected. 
I'm a vulnerable. I was a vulnerable, sexually confused child myself. On so I appreciate her intervention. Of course, Graham didn't attack him about that issue in, in a way, but he's quite misleading phrasing. Even then, I stuck to my guns, refusing to take his criticism on board. But watching what's been happening with Roisin's story in recent weeks has made me reflect on this. Graham Lenahan, who is without question one of our best screenwriters, has sacrificed enormous amounts in his support of women, children, gay men, and lesbians. He's experienced trauma in his personal life, been vilified for his views online, in newspapers, and on television. He's currently unable to work in the industry he loves. There's no legal reason for me to post this message. In fact, Graham will be as surprised by its appearance as anyone. But I've given a lot of thought to this and realized that all I did in that piece five years ago was add to the pylon of a decent man in a vulnerable place when I could have used my platform to defend and support him. Graham, without equivocation, without excuses, and without evasion, you were right. I was wrong. And that's if you don't know who John Boyne is, oh, and I apologize, he says it again. He is the author of the boy in the striped pajamas. It was quite a big deal back when books still seemed to vaguely matter before everything was just about the internet. And it was quite the reversal there. And does that suggest that people are, are, are not only changing their minds, but are prepared to publicly state that they were wrong? Uh, well, let's hope so. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely been um, a shift um, in on this particular issue. Um, uh, uh, I mean, I think that... Um, the period in which it was just in for a dig to say anything um, likely to antagonize trans rights activists is 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 beginning to fade. Um, one of the reasons Rashid Murphy was particularly vulnerable, I think we haven't mentioned this yet, is that um, her core fan base um, are LGBTQ plus people. It may be that her record company thought that because of that, um, she needed to apologize immediately because she was risking uh, you know, um, uh, her next album tanking. Um, but they may have, because because they received, I'm sure, lots of emails telling them to get rid of her from trans rights activists, they may have wrongly assumed that the LGBTQ community is, you know, a monolithic, homogenous block. Uh, but actually, there's quite a lot of um, division within that group. And the LGBs don't always support the T's. And actually, she might have made more sales amongst the LGBs for saying this, even though she might have lost the T's. But then again, not all the T's are trans rights activists either. So I think the record company probably um, uh, panicked um, uh, because of her popularity uh, with that community and imagining that if a few of them were objecting to what she was saying, then all of them were objecting. It was going to affect her album sales. Um, I should just say that Graham Linehan accepted that apology, yeah. um, which um, which uh, I don't see how he could have not accepted it, in part because um, he joined a pile-on against me, Graham Linehan, that is, in 2011. So when I... Um, uh, I got. I, I was one of the. Um, I was a columnist when the Sun on Sunday first launched, um, uh, and um, I tweeted something uh, defending the news of the world, and uh, Graham Linehan um, attacked me in a fairly intemperate, intolerant way, and it prompted actually. He led the pile on it prompted a pile and I thought oh my god I'm going to lose this job before my first columns appeared um and uh, and it, it was pretty unpleasant um uh, uh, and, uh, and but he has subsequently apologized for that and um I've accepted his apology so I don't see how he could have not accepted uh, was it Graham Burns's apology John Boyne Steve jo John Moyne sorry John Boyne yeah yeah that's interesting I was going I thought I was someone who defended sort of a controversial topics the news of the world <laughs> that's like one of the least popular things to defend ever that's quite funny but yeah graham had that with a lot of people he attacked people 
suspiciously. And, you know, he saw the error, you know, Count Dankley was another one. He, he apologized for that. He saw the error of his ways. You know, he was mm. brought into all the leftist nonsense and now he's come, come out of it to some degree. What's interesting about this to me, well, there's lots of things interesting about it. One thing we haven't mentioned is they're still, these are still ultra liberal people arguing for ultra liberalism. Like John Boyne's a gay man arguing for gay rights. Well, not that gay rights are ultra liberal, but Graham Linhan's arguing for women's rights. Obviously, you've got that 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 opposition between wokeness, which is not liberal, as Andrew Dawes pointed out, and liberalism. So you could say it's that simple. But it's just quite funny that in arguing for all this stuff and bitterly kind of fighting this trans madness, we're still fighting for an extremely liberal position. You know, they're not fighting for like straight white men or something. It's still it's fighting for women's rights and gay rights versus the the, mm. the trans sort of mm. voracious trans lobby. So it's still, it's just quite funny that we see these things as these great victories, but they're still sort of, they're still within a context of extreme liberalism. That's just a little point I've noticed. <laughs> yes, um, that's true. Yeah, I don't think people like Andrew Doyle and um, uh, John Boyne um, are um, seeking to turn the clock back. Um, uh, but um, yeah, they're just seeking to defend, um, you know, gains that have been made. Uh, you know, for for gay rights and women's rights and the rest of it, and I don't suppose they even want to. You know, they're not even most of them anyway attacking trans rights, just the excesses of the trans rights activists and just where they want to uh, entrench rights that will erode already established rights for women. So, as you say, yeah, it's 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 to a certain extent an internecine conflict between liberals, between kind of um, liberals who. 25 years ago would have been thought to have been, you know, um, quite far out there, have now become solidly mainstream. Um, uh, and then these ultra liberals who aren't even really particularly liberal. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't have any qualms about um, making common cause. It's quite fun to be um, in bed with uh, with these folks. Um, yeah. I don't mean that literally. <laughs> it's just, no, it's just stress. It's just, it's just quite an amusing thing that this amount of vitriol is about, you know, one extreme left, and another one, I would say. But and the reason it's quite interesting is as well is that the online right is so far out there. You know, what me, we're having this argument in the mainstream. It's an argument about whether we should mutilate children or not, and that's kind of how far you're allowed to go in the mainstream. And you're not even really allowed to go there, as we've seen from the cancellation of the various people, including Rosie Murphy. Meanwhile, the online right, like Pearl, Pearl, you know, Pearl Davis and people like that, are saying women shouldn't vote. <laughs> it's like it's just so it's just funny to me that. You know where where the sort of online right is compared to where the mainstream is, and how radically different yes. it is. I, I suppose it, it partly depends upon um, how you interpret the woke movement. Um, there are certainly some conservatives who see it as the natural development from the sixties um, ultra liberalism. Um, uh, 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 the permissive society, the breakdown of the family. This is where we've ended up. And I was reading a column by Ed West on his Substack today saying, you know, making the point that um, revolutionary movements, which seek to transform society and um, uh, uh, uproot tradition, um, start off with a kind of libertarian aspect. Um, uh, and then descend into authoritarianism. So you know, and he didn't make this. He didn't make this analogy, but certainly uh, during the um, uh, first, during the um, communist revolution in Russia in 2017, it initially had 
um, a libertarian dimension. Um, it went, there was a great deal of sexual liberation, freedom from religious oppression. There was an explosion of freedom of expression. I think the trees outside the Kremlin were painted day glow orange at one point by various artists whose creativity had been uh, released by the revolution. And it had this kind of, you know, this free for all, free love, permissive dimension, and then quite quickly descended into totalitarianism and um for for for, for conservatives of that stripe uh, this was what what we're seeing now is the inevitable consequence of the um ideological movements which um which flourished in the 1960s and 70s whereas for others you know um there's a clear line between liberalism and this authoritarian ideology which has sprung up more recently and which they think has little connection to li- with the, with liberalism yeah, interesting. And I interviewed Andrew Doll about this on the Current Thing podcast. Want to listen to that? Whether it he he believes in liberalism and believes wokeness is a completely separate to it. Others believe it's 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 an offshoot of it. Interesting debate. We probably don't have time for it today. But um, can I add one more thing though, Toby, on this, which is that there was this response from Billy Bragg to the Roisin Murphy situation, which, which I just thought was appalling. He said, Roisin is an adult, clearly aware that what she is saying is highly contentious. Don't call me a turf, etc. Why are anti-trans activists surprised when they face pushback for their divisive views? That's what happens when you take sides so publicly, as I know to my cost. This is a disgusting bit. The fact that Glinna has become a pariah should be evidence enough that the majority in the entertainment industry support trans rights. It's why Suzanne's appeal for music writers, I think that's Suzanne Moore, is it, from the original post, Mm. To defend Roisin fell on deaf ears. You have the telegraph. You have the telegraph. We have art. That's the really strange part. So Billy Bragg is positing the arts as a sort of groupthink mafia that will brutally kick you out if you don't have the correct view. And of course, that's what it is and has become, at least. But clearly, that's the antithesis of what art's supposed to be about. But in Billy Bragg's world, that's completely fine. That's normal. And that's what you should expect. What did she expect? She said something that went against the majority opinion in her industry. Of course, she's going to be brutally kicked out. She can go to the Telegraph. And, what? What is? What? She's going to become a Telegraph columnist. Uh, this who's someone who's a singer their whole life. You know, it's an absurd, this appalling, authoritarian, moronic worldview. Yes, I mean, it's actually, but it's it reflects what has become the prevailing consensus um, amongst artists and within the kind of artistic community within the arts, which is, I don't don't mean there is the kind of majority in support of um, the excesses of the trans rights agenda. I mean, this idea that artistic expression should be downstream of ideology, uh, that actually the the overriding purpose of artistic expression um, is to promote a particular ideological point of view. So um, if you dissent from that ideological point of view, then you can't, you're excluded from the artistic community. I mean, it's a kind of, it's a sort of, it's this weird idea. And I think it's also symptomatic of kind of the the moment of kind of revolutionary ferment we are currently in, um, that art has to serve this kind of ideological agenda. And if it doesn't, um, if it departs from it in any way, uh, then um, the artist should be excluded. And that's perfectly acceptable because the purpose of art um, is not to enable people to express themselves. It's not to extend our understanding or to challenge us. It's to promote. It's to propagandize. It's in service of an ideology. 
Yeah, what a strange view of art, though, isn't it? I mean, to me, to me, that is the antithesis of what art is: arts to challenge and to subvert and to question and to sort of enter into realms we don't fully understand, the mysterious realms beyond conscious understanding, things like that. I mean, it can be to rebel against it. It can be all sorts of things. But the idea that it's just to form a, a sort of block of opinion and 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 cast out women who say the wrong thing. I mean, I don't. Mm. How can that ever be the definition of art? I mean, what a scumbag. Yeah, and, and it, it, but it, it sort of makes sense. If you think that the purpose of art um, is to promote a particular ideology, not any ideology, but this particular ideology, um, then you can see why um, freedom of expression isn't valued. You know, why defend freedom of expression when you don't want people to be able to choose as to what they say when they're wanting to express themselves artistically? You just want them to rigidly promote this particular ideology. Yeah, weird, isn't it? You, what kind of art would that lead to? Just sort of weird sort of... I suppose Billy Bragg did do sort of pro-communist songs. Like Between the Wars is actually a good song, but it is actually communist propaganda at the same time. But can you imagine a sort of just chorus of Billy Bragg's like singing well, pro-commie songs for the regime? I think we have to be a bit more um, tolerant than people like Billy Bragg and allow that there can be artists who see it as their mission to promote woke ideology, um, uh, who actually produce good art. Um, you know, we're not excluding them from the artistic community. If that's how you want to use your talent, good luck to you. Um, but we just want the we just want um, more people than that to be admitted and included in that community. And I think we can probably. I mean, maybe Billy Bragg's not a good example, but we probably can think. Of, of of woke art, which isn't completely reprehensible. I mean, I'm, can you think of anything? <laughs> no, because it has become <laughs> reprehensible and terrible. And we think about movies and Disney and Star Wars and all these kind of woke things now. I think what it is, it's told, it's when they get in charge. See, Billy Bragg singing Between the Wars on Top of the Pops when we don't have basically a communist takeover in the country is sort of somewhat subversive. It's kind of his view, okay, he's a lefty nutter, but it's a quite a good song. And and it, and it it is sort of subversive in a in a way, but when you have leftism as the ruling ideology as we do now, or some weird version of it, then it's very hard for art to, for leftist or woke art to be any. I don't think woke art can probably never be of value, but even lefty art, it's the same thing with Stuart Lee. He's still technically good, but now he's very much on the side of the regime, which I think we've discussed before. So that's mm. that's the the difficulty for them. And another, you could have woke people who are good singers and things like that. let's say, I don't know what Adele thinks, but let's say Adele's really woke. She could be really woke and still be a great singer singing about relationships while sort of having woke views or pandering to woke views on the side. You certainly have that. I don't think you can ever have ostensibly, overtly, let's say, that's the word, overtly woke art that's actually good because then all it ever does is push the ideology Mm. at the expense of the art, as we've seen with the, you know, any number of movies. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, yeah, well, I think... um, isn't Taylor Swift an example of a woke artist who was also also possesses artistic merit? I mean, I'm not. I'm no. No, she, to me, expert. she's an, she's a, she's an ex, um, an example of someone who has artistic merit because she has some good songs about relationships and things. And then she'll she'll occasionally, you know, I don't know if she even says that much woke. For a long time, she wouldn't come out on either side, would she? Then she did come out on the Democrat side, but it's not really in her songs. They're not about wokeness. They're about boys <laughs> and what a nightmare. They are, and you always end up thinking she's really the nightmare in the song. But I don't, I don't know. Can you actually think of an example of something that promotes wokeness? 
overtly. Well, I thought, but that, it's actually uh, good. Uh, uh, did, you, did you ever watch Billions? Did you ever watch Billions? I watched a little. I watched a little bit because I didn't really like there it. Was, Paul there was Paul Giamatti, who I do like. There was an autistic trans character in I don't know season four or season five who I thought was quite in, interesting. I didn't. I didn't immediately kind of switch off because there was a trans character in the film. <laughs> You're struggling totally a bit. Now. <laughs> season four of Billions. There was one character. Is that what you've got? Come on. That's all I've got. I, might... <laughs> I mean, people can write uh, in, but I really don't think you can have overtly woke art. That's good. I think it's inherently bad. Slow horses. Um, I mean, it was. It certainly kind of. Uh, it's a sort of. It embraces a kind of pro-Remain centrist dad kind of philosophy, and the chief villain is a kind of um, uh, a sort of uh, a right-wing populist political leader. Um, but nevertheless, I thought that was a high quality. Yeah, I stopped watching TV because of series. that, and then people told me, okay. "No, it actually subverts that if you keep watching." And there was an argument <laughs> about whether bit, it yeah. subverts it or not. But so I can't comment on that. Maybe. I think I, I, I'm pretty sure there can't be good woke art. I'll, I'll try and think of something. There can be, like I say, people who just have, do good art and they happen to say woke things on the side because they kind of have to, or if they even believe it. But I don't think that's quite the same thing. I can't think of anything. Anyway, Billy Bragg, what a bit of an idiot. Should we move on and do Gillian Ke- Keegan? That's who Gillian Keegan. We're trying to do a yep. short episode for your running friend. So <laughs> Gillian Keegan did a gaffe, and luckily for your running friend, I don't have too much to say on this. But she was caught on a hot mic saying, does, does anyone ever, after, after a fairly pressing interview, does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done an effing good job because everyone else has sat on their ass and done nothing. No signs of that? No. And she's basically saying, you've just done an annoying interview with me. You lot have done nothing. You just sit there. And actually, I'm dealing with this aerated concrete scandal and you lot are doing nothing. And that actually... I sort of sympathise. I don't know much about Gillian Keegan. She said some things that are okay and some things that are stupid. And this one was, you know, I got sympathised with the hot mic thing for a start because it's constant danger, especially at GB where things are known to go a bit wrong. I'm always like shushing people when they're still on mic. I said one thing that wasn't too bad that got out on mic, but it's like that could easily happen to any of us. Turn off your mics, people. And yeah, so I sympathise on that level. Also, it's just a human moment. She was frustrated. I know lots of people say, well, it's your government and blah, blah, and you've done nothing and you've been on holiday in Spain. So I can see that as well. But what do you think, Toby? Yeah, um, I felt sorry for her. Um, And actually, I thought it made her look quite human and um, sympathetic. Obviously frustrated. She's, 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 you know, it's almost like a game of pass the parcel. She's the education secretary who's been left holding the ball. This was a crisis that's uh, been bubbling away like a ticking bomb. That's a mixed metaphor. But, you know, anyway, she, 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 she's been left holding the bomb when it exploded. And um, so it's not really her fault. Um, uh, is it the present government's fault? I mean, that's that's kind of debatable. Um, uh, but, you know, um, uh, one of the reasons it's proving very difficult to improve um, the schools that uh, have been built with this aerated concrete and are now having to be closed and refurbed is because of the um, public finance initiatives pioneered by Gordon Brown, which uh, sucked up an enormous amount of the budget allocated for school buildings. It was a terrible program uh, and enriched a lot of construction companies um, at the expense of um, the school estate. Um, So I don't think the, the, the blame can entirely be placed at the door of, you know, successive conservative coalition governments. Um, but um, it's clearly embarrassing. I thought one one of the why this was significant is the speed with which ITV um, betrayed her. You know, they they caught her. 
They recorded her saying this and they immediately posted the clip on Twitter and it blew up. And then she had to, you know, do another round of the studios apologizing for her impromptu comments. And um, and now her, you know, there's a question mark hanging over her future. Is she going to survive? Um, uh, but um, Camilla Tomini wrote quite a good piece in The Telegraph this morning in which she said that this, this reflects the um, low esteem in which um, ITV and journalists more generally hold the current government. They're not worried about burning bridges with them uh, by doing things like this because they don't think they'll be around for much longer. Everyone's just written them off. And they're looking to their successors, assuming Keir Starmer is going to be the next prime minister. Um, so, um, you know, all quite depressing. Yeah, it is quite a nasty thing to put out. What I didn't quite understand was, was it still running on the original live show or have they released that later? Because the latter is very vindictive. The former is just. Oh, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think it was, um, I think, I think she, I think she said it when they'd stopped broadcasting, um, but they'd recorded it and they then released that as a clip on Twitter. Yeah. So that's disgusting. That's a disgusting thing to do. If that's the case, I mean, now I do have a stronger opinion on it, and I've just realised that. Yeah, because that's what you. Yeah, because you just. They obviously stopped broadcasting for to do that. They said they were doing additional shots, is why it was still running. Yeah, but why release it? That doesn't need to be released. Yeah, so it's just doesn't need to be released. And and you know, and and the reason she made those remarks is because she understood the interview to be over. So she was sort of assuming she was effectively trusting. ITV not to record what she was saying after the interview had finished. Um, uh, so it was a sort of breach of trust. I mean, maybe it was naive of her to do that. Maybe the, you know, the terms of engagement hadn't been kind of... But I think, you know, most politicians um, uh, know that, um, you know, that, that they can trust broadcasters not to do that, which isn't to say this is the first time they've done it. You know, there was that ITV released that clip of Ed Miliband saying the same thing over and over again, but in a slightly different way in answer to a question. It was very embarrassing for him, but it was actually during a broadcast interview. So I think that's fair game. There was the um, That Bigoted Woman hot mic episode with Gordon Brown during the, what, 2010 general election, which seemed to finish him off. Um, uh, And I guess that was the BBC who released that. But you can see why during a general election campaign, there's more justification for doing it, whereas this seemed like just a, just just targeted at the current Conservative government and at her in particular. Um, yeah, yeah. So pretty pretty vindictive and, and nasty. I think hot mics do come out, but they come out like years later. There's that woman talking about how they had the Clintons tied to the Epstein scandal, and they they come out like years later for things that are in the public interest. But for ITV to release it themselves, yeah. Ian Dale said it's reprehensible. Steve Edgington says it's so um, it's. He says, uh, it's so tiresome defending Keegan, but this hot mic scandal is a perfect example of our broken media. This is not a story serving the public interest. It's clickbait for Twitter and was very poor form from ITV to release it. I actually think it makes Keegan look all right. And I, I basically agree with that. What? Yeah, it's poor they released it. She, I, she could have said that. It's hard, I suppose, when you're up against it in a public scandal and your government's up against it. But I, if I had her, if it was her, I might have come out and said, well, by the way, why did they release it? And actually got on the front foot. You know, Trump mm, would have mm. done that. They should yeah. never have released it. That was terrible. Yeah, no, he would have definitely done that. So, yeah, yeah I think that's yeah. ITV being scum. Uh, all right. Speaking of scum, should we move on and do Sadiq Khan? Let's do Sadiq I've Khan. I've said scum yeah. a lot today. Billy Bragg, Sadiq Khan, but actually, <laughs> I think I'm right. So this, there was this C40 group, a global network of city mayors backed by, as Chris Morrison on Daily Skeptic puts it, numerous hard left billionaire foundations. 
And so it's come out, and you're going to talk about this with Will later, probably in more sort of forensic detail, knowing Will, but, but we can just look at the fun aspects of it, fun slash incredibly disturbing. So Chris writes, in a headline report published by the group in 2019 and re-emphasized earlier this year, a progressive target for 2030 was set by this strange C40 group of a daily per person allowance of 44 grams of meat, enough for two small meatballs, a daily limit of 2,500 calories, could help me at the moment, trying to lose weight, less than the ration in the Second World War, one short-haul flight every three years, won't affect me, eight new clothing items per year, I've heard three elsewhere as well on Twitter, and private cars available for only one in five people. This pioneering piece of thought leadership, quoting themselves, was set to seek a was said to seek a radical and rapid shift in consumption patterns. And later, he also notes that there is this agenda for 2050 where they say that building materials that are terrible, you know, like bricks, glass, and steel, can be replaced with rammed earth, which Chris calls mud huts for the lower classes, in other words. (laughs) So this is what, this is so shocking. This is stuff that's so shocking, it's actually hard to believe. It's a bit like the WEF, you know, eats the bugs. It's actually hard to get the public public to get their head around it. That that's what these people are thinking of doing. So, forty four grams of meat. We know they've got this war on meat. The eight new clothing items is absolutely shocking. I mean, not like buy loads of clothes, but one. We all know they want to get rid of flights. One short haul flight every three years. I mean, they've decided. Toby, these people have decided. We all know this, but this is, this makes lockdowns look minor. They've decided where to just live as we as mud hut peasants eating Bill Gates' synthetic meat in freezing cold houses with with one change of clothes. And this is what they want for the majority of people. And unless you're rich, this is what this is what the future is, unless we fight against it every day. This is the greatest threat to, to people. Or is it some mad people getting together, coming up with nonsense because they're weird losers? Well, it's interesting you should say that uh, this reminds you or rhymes with the WEF's um, proposal that we should eat bugs this is this is a wef initiative so this 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 i'm on the world economic forum website now and 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 it's the page with the c40 cities climate leadership group so this leadership group this initiative um was um convened um uh, at the behest of the wef um so little wonder um it fits with some of their other objectives right everything's um, wef you don't want to say it, it sounds conspiratorial but it actually just is <laughs> um it, it is it is it is um it is quite disturbing um but um i don't think it's absolutely inevitable um that uh, we'll have to comply with all these limitations on our consumption habits by 2030 uh, I think the initial target is by 2030, um, you know, only if we reelect these city mayors. And um, I imagine that, you know, that this will, that this kind of thing will harm Sadiq Khan's re-election prospects. Let's hope it does anyway. Um, I mean, who who could possibly look forward to a future and not the distant future, but a future which, which they hope to, you know, they hope to achieve within six years in which we can only buy eight items of clothing a year in which... Um, we're only allowed to take what is it? How many flights? It was it was one in three years. One short haul flight one, every three years. Sh- You'll be in trouble, yeah. Toby, with all your holidays. I'll be exactly the same. <laughs> the tragedy is, I'll be the same. I live like a WEF surf anyway. Because after once yeah. they brought in COVID passports and jabs and all this, I just said, fine, I won't leave the country. Checkmate. Although you could argue they won. I do eat meat, of course. I work, do a lot of strength training, so I need to get my protein in. 
I mean, so that will be. I'm trying to eat 950 calories at the moment, so the calories are okay. Uh, but the, I mean, the meat one is the one that really bothers me. Everyone will have one that bothers them. Rammed earth houses being freezing cold. Rammed earth. I'm not totally thrilled by either. <laughs> but the short haul flight, Toby, you're in massive trouble. Yeah, I'm in trouble there. And yeah, I don't fancy moving to a mud hut either. Um, you have to get a with, private jet. With... It's what Andrew Tate always says. It's the have yachts and the have nots. And of course, you can, they can also just put you in jail. We are moving to this radical, it's the Hunger Games Society. David Icke's called it. It's a, you know, but it's looking, it's like that. You know, people like Icke, people say he's mad, but then what? this is what they want. And actually quite mainstream yeah. publications are talking about it. Andy Kessler in the Wall Street Journal covered it. And I couldn't read it because it was paywall. And then Jordan Peterson replied, read the C40 docs. I have... No cars, flights, heat, air conditioning, or new clothes for the peasants. And the four, and 40 cities have agreed, and Sadiq Khan is testing the ground as far as I can see. Wake up, peasants. You have everything to lose, and there are people waiting and wanting to take it. So he says that, <laughs> wake up, peasants, you have everything to lose. What do you think to that? Yeah, I think. Well, I think. I think. I think. Um, I think he's thinking along the right lines. I mean, it, 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 it's just impossible to imagine people actually voting for this. You know, so um, if if democracy survives, then I don't see how the WEF agenda, for want of a better term, um, uh, will be implemented. Uh, it's so it's you know it's it, it. Why would turkeys vote for Christmas? Um, it's so it's such an unpleasant vision of the future. So devoid, so so devoid of pleasure, so joyless um, that uh, I can't see a majority voting for it. Um, uh, which which means that you know um, if 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 they if they if they're going to um, implement this agenda, then there's going to have to be some kind of attack on democracy. Yeah. Um, and so maybe maybe that's what's coming. It is. Um, I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're seeing it in all sorts of ways already. Um, but to my mind. It isn't that threatening because it's so patently ridiculous. I mean, there's, it's so over the top. Um, you know, how can they imagine that anyone would kind of willingly vote for mayors sort of promising to introduce this? Um, you know, so if this is their agenda, if this is their vision for the future, then surely they have little hope of succeeding unless they can at the same time succeed in completely, you know, hollowing out our democratic institutions, suppressing any dissent, controlling information flow, outlawing, you know, um, podcasts like this, then, you know, maybe it will happen. But uh, I would have thought that, um, you know, um, there's enough, there's enough kind of um, attachment amongst the general public to basic liberties and the principles of democracy to prevent that from happening. Well, unfortunately, Toby, I don't agree. I mean, look at lockdowns. We saw that people had no clue about civil liberties. We're quite happy to just fall into authoritarianism. You say if democracy survives, I'd already say we've had a dodgy US election. Sadiq Khan, a microcosm of that is Sadiq Khan holding on in London. I suppose that is technically democracy, but it seems impossible to get rid of him. But that, I suppose, technically is democracy. But if you look at these articles we well, covered they, before, two articles. So probably say, go, on, yeah. go on, go on, go on. I was just going to say um, uh, the, the, the last mayoral election was postponed, wasn't it? And Sadiq Khan was allowed to remain in office after his term had expired because um, it fell within the lockdown period. Um, but um, yeah, but I think I think to your point about um, well, look, you know, how attached can the public be to basic liberties if they mm -hmm. agreed to be locked in their homes for? 15 months that was always ever that was always presented as a temporary aberration not a permanent change whereas 
you know, um, all, all, all the targets in the C40 manifesto are permanent changes. Not, not, they're not, they're not things we can kind of resile from once the climate has kind of adjusted, supposedly, and yeah. returned to normal. Yeah, and it, but the idea that people will take that. I mean, let me just say these two articles I was going to quote from August 21st, elections are bad for democracy, New York Times, and Americans vote too much in the Atlantic. And they're released on the same day, positing and seeding the idea there that elections are bad. This is where they are going to go, I believe. I mean, as you say, how else can they get it through? But they, the fact that they think people will tolerate this on any level shows their ultra contempt for people. The idea that people are going to live in mud hut with, with no food and cold. But this is what they want. Of course, people have been treated like that throughout most of history so they perhaps that's what they're going for you know look how people are treated during stalinism or feudalism or you can you can go you know probably most of history you had a large peasant class i imagine i'm not a historian so that probably is what they're trying to do and we'll just have to fight it like people have always had to fight for their rights it's quite shocking to think about it's quite hard to overemphasize how evil people like khan are when they come up with stuff like this well, they imagine they they imagine they're doing it for the greater good, don't they? Um, it isn't just really? because he wants to, you know, he's thinking about, you know, um, getting some kind of cushy, well-paid job at the UN um, when his mayoralty, when his term expires. Um, uh, you know, being a kind of uh, climate czar of some kind. Um, I imagine he 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 really does believe it. He really thinks that unless we do radically adjust our consumption habits, the world is going to disappear in a in a in a in a kind of um, uh, puff of smoke um, in seventy five years time. You know, he's 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 completely bought into the climate emergency propaganda. I wonder if someone like Khan even believes it or just goes along with stuff and just for personal power. But in general, though, that point is even more frightening that they actually do believe it, and so they will impose these horrific immiserations on people horrific privations because they really do think that yeah once you've bought into the idea that the world is going to end if you don't do it of course you'll do anything so it's a terrifying cult that has taken over the world i mean the trans cult is scary enough but the climate cult is about as dangerous and horrific as it gets isn't it i mean yeah I think it, I think long term it poses a bigger threat to liberty than the lockdowns did or future pandemics do. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it is it is certainly the, the main threat to both um, freedom and democracy current currently hanging over our heads. And you can't say anything about it at all. Or you're a climate denier, and it's just live in your rammed mud hut with no clothes, eating forty four <laughs> grams of meat, or you're just climate denying scum. I mean, it's just incredible. And people are buying into this rubbish. A lot of people aren't, of course, but. Amazing. I mean, where do you even begin with this stuff? It's you just—you sound mad talking. This kind of stuff you're just talking about, you sound mad, and that's probably one of their tactics. But it is what they are. It's what they're saying. It's on their website. It's the usual thing with the WEF. You sound mental talking about it, and you go go to the website, which we'll cover maybe <laughs> with the ADL later as well. But speaking of the end of democracy, Toby, interesting story from across the pond. We don't have a, a jingle for across the pond, but I introduced it as if we did. Um, so this is a Proud Boys Florida leader. Joe Biggs, who was jailed for 17 years over the Capitol riot. And that is an absolutely shocking sentence. So if you listen to conservatives on Twitter, they basically say this guy shook a fence and has got 17 years because it turned out the building was technically a government building, but he couldn't have realized that. That's the conservative take. The lefty take and the sort of Democrat take, obviously, is that this is, there's a need for deterrence. And when we covered this on headliners, Nicholas DeSanto wittily pointed out, Josh, how he said, well, yeah, you, but there's, you need you need deterrence, and and uh, Nicholas goes, yeah, but that's what also what Saudi Arabia say when they cut your hand off. So they've given him this incredibly harsh sentence. He has a six year old daughter. 
mother with cancer. He's a military veteran. Got a bit carried away following this group that actually was started as a joke, famously, by Gavin McInnes, who was a the guy that co-founded Vice. So he's a he's godfather of the hipster movement, a guy who's interested in artistic movements and subversive things and comedy, then invents the Proud Boys because politics is where it's at now. Conservative politics is a subversive thing. Thinks it's a fun joke, like a men's turns it into a men's group. It evolves. They get together, wear polo shirts, and have fights and sort of have a laugh. Then it kind of gets a bit more edgy. It goes all a bit Fight Club, and they have got carried away. There's no doubt. But have they got carried away to the point where they deserve 17 years in prison? And then Ethan Nordeen, another proud boy, got 18 years. And Toby, it just seems to me wildly disproportionate. It seems to me that this two-tier justice system we hear so much about an extreme example because. For example, you had a New York City attorney firebomb the police car. It was empty at the time, but still got 15 months. And the longest, as Andy No points out, that any Antifa activist has got was Malik Mohammed, who got 10 years. But that was for planning a mass murder with explosives in Portland. So you get a load of explosives. You want to blow a load of people up. 10 years. You rattle a fence. 17 years. And I think they only do the Antifa things when they really have to as well. That guy still got bailed out, by the way, by Antifa. So it's the, t- the, the explosives guy. So I don't know. I just think it's another extreme example of political persecution. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly looks that way. And one would hope that um, he can get his sentence reduced, um, if not his conviction overturned on appeal. Um, uh, but as you say, it does feel like... Um, very much there is uh, two, well maybe maybe describing it as i know what you mean but maybe describing it as a two-tier criminal justice system um doesn't quite capture what's happened it's more that the criminal justice system is pivoting to punishing subversion um and in contemporary america where most of the public institutions have been captured by woke cultists um there's something much more subversive about someone linked to the proud boys than there is about someone linked to antifa in a way antifa is just the paramilitary wing of the um uh ideology ideology um that's already captured you know the commanding heights of um american public life um so maybe it isn't maybe it's not it's not that um there's a double standard. It's just there's a single standard being imposed across the American criminal justice system. Whereas if you try, where if if you're a subversive uh, protester who engages in civil disobedience on the right, you pose a much greater threat to the new order than if you're a left wing, civilly disobedient protester. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it 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 does it does if that's true. If um, if if there's now essentially a new public morality uh, 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 that's being enforced by the courts um, in the US um, and there's no longer the kind of traditional separation between church and state, the woke church has intermingled, become kind of inseparable uh, from the state, then that is a kind of important shift that, that's taken place and that we need to understand. And it's certainly something that um, the people in charge of America's criminal justice system are not being honest about. Um, but um, maybe it would be better if they were. I, I debated, this is, This was one of the themes of my speech at um, the National Conservatism Conference, that the woke have essentially assumed power, but without putting on the robes of office. 
they've assumed power. They've effectively taken over all these institutions and to a great extent, the criminal justice system, not just in the US, but here too. Um, But they're constantly in denial about it. They won't admit that they've assumed power. They still style themselves anti-establishment rebels. Somehow it's absolutely essential to their self-understanding and their, indeed, the maintenance of their power that they should still be portrayed as out of power, tilting against a white supremacist establishment. And that's very much how Antifa think of themselves. But actually, you know, the fact is they have more or less assumed power. They just haven't taken on the robes of office. It's unofficial. There is no formal union of church and state. There is no admission that we now have this new public morality that the courts enforce. And yet it's more and more obvious uh, with each passing day. Would we be better off if actually they said, actually, um, uh, from now on, you know, we are going to punish people on the right, and not the left. The police are going to openly embrace left wing causes and punish people who protest in favor of right wing causes. The state has just become it's just tilted to the left. We're now enforcing woke orthodoxy. That's who we are. Uh, in some ways, that might be preferable um, uh, because at least, um, you know, then we could um, uh, we could perhaps kind of plot toward, you know, for, for a glorious revolution. Uh, maybe if they assume the robes of office, they'd have to kind of take more responsibility for their decisions. Anyway, interesting debate. And you can read that piece um, in The Daily Skeptic if you search for my name and national conservatism speech. Yeah, exactly, Toby. It's, I was saying two-tier justice system because that's a, a, a term you hear on, on Twitter a lot about it, but I think it doesn't go far enough. It's exactly as you say, Antifa is the paramilitary wing. They are punishing subversives, which are the right. And that is what they're doing. But of course, that gaslighting element of claiming they're not the ones in power and claiming they're not really doing that is is another aspect of the tactic for them that, that works and is powerful. So of course, they're not going to come out and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah, that would be better for us so people really realized it or for conservatives or, or normal people. But they're not going to do that. And if, if Joe Biggs is not a sympathetic example, I think he is quite sympathetic because he has a six-year-old daughter and he, he's a military veteran who seemingly got a bit carried away. But then there's people like Edward Jacob Lang, who's just a kid who's a Christian, who just seems like a normal kid. Again, was there at Jan 6 and just been languishing in jail for years. And I think he finally had a trial two years later. But it's, it's unbelievable. They've all been treated terribly. Anyone involved in Jan 6. For, you know, if you believe the narrative, they were really trying to take over America. But this is a very convenient narrative, isn't it? I don't believe it. I think it was just as we, you know, a protest that got out of hand. But it's been very convenient for them. And as I said last week, of course, it doesn't stop with them. They've, they've persecuted Bannon, Trump, obviously, Navarro, uh, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, and it goes on and on. But you said, well, maybe they're just all corrupt. But I see it as all part of the same thing. We have this one government, the uni party, whatever you want to call it, and, and no one else is allowed in. It'd be interesting to see if anyone is allowed in other than, you know, as a sort of controlled opposition. I, I sort of suspect, if, here's what I suspect, that they'll never allow a Republican in again, but that would look too obvious. So they'll have a sort of controlled opposition one. Sorry if I sound a bit Team James. Whether it's whoever that is, whether it's Vivek or someone, Trump is the only one that seems to be actually outside the system, whereas all the others just seem to be part of this system. What do you think to that? Yeah, well, I, 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 I where I part company with you, I think, is that, um, uh, and, and why I'm more optimistic, is that I don't think that the kind of woke takeover of the state um, is complete. 
Um, I think it's it, it's it's um, probably far more extensive than the woke are willing to acknowledge, um, but not quite as extensive as the kind of more paranoid people on our side claim. I don't think it's nearly as organised as you know people on our side often believe. I think that um, we often mistake the kind of flim flam that organisations like the WEF produce when trying to kind of raise money and big themselves up. I think they exaggerate their influence. And I think uh, people imagine that it's kind of coordinated, controlled, very well resourced by these kind of malevolent billionaires like George Soros and Bill Gates. And that, you know, the, the world government is only kind of, you know, a couple of years away and we can already see its emergence, you know, across the globe. Um, uh, and there's almost nothing we can do about it. But I think that uh, that's a kind of council of despair. I don't think it is particularly well organised. I think one of the reasons the woke, um, you know, won't acknowledge the extent of their power um, is because um, it's quite fragile and they're not as entrenched as they might be. So I still think, you know, the battle isn't lost. Um, the state hasn't quite been completely captured. Um, and uh, I think you can, I think within these institutions, that one of the reasons, um, you know, um, uh, the pangendrums, the American criminal justice system, for instance, um, aren't willing to acknowledge that they punish right-wing protesters much more severely than left-wing protesters when they come before the courts is because to them it's important to maintain this um, uh, uh, patina of impartiality you know justice is blind we're not taking sides we're not we're not partisan and I think you can appeal to that as well as their professed commitment to other democratic values like freedom of speech uh, the fact that they appeal to these values the fact that they won't acknowledge that they've been as eroded as they have, um, suggests to me that there is still a kind of you can still you can still appeal to the better angels of these people's nature, and you can still appeal to the kind of traditions um, and constitutions and policies of these institutions um, to to kind of uh, resurrect them and um, uh, and recapture them, as it were, on behalf of the kind of um, uh, ordinary common sense. Um, people like us so uh so i i i, I think uh, I, I don't think things that things are as far far along as you sometimes fear mm -hmm. um uh, and i think i think there is still hope well i don't intend it as a council of despair it is immoral to despair i think it's i just want it to be i want us to be realistic about what we're facing that's the way i see it so you know if you think the election is rigged you should say it and you just you know this is what we're up against this is what they're prepared to do i just see them as completely ruthless so that's why i say that and on your other point, the better angels of their nature, that's a point I've sort of said before that I don't believe you can appeal to the better angels of their nature, but I, it does. it is interesting that the idea of liberal democracy or the values we all thought we had, that is still out there to appeal to, as I've said with things like the Coots scandal and other things, they still have to refer to it and pretend to have those values. So it, it, you can't actually openly have woke values at a certain level. You can have them at in the arts and things, but if you're if you're NatWest Bank, you can't just say yes, we shut him down for his views. You can say it internally in those documents, but you can't come out and say that's what we believe. So yeah, that's the that's that's I'm not quite fully teased out this, but there there is this element where they still have to appeal to the sort of simulacrum of a liberal society mm. for some reason. So they still know that that's what people actually want. It's a bit like all this rammed earth. 44 kilograms of meat or stuff. How are they going to sell that to us? They're going to sell it as 
climate. Maybe they believe it, as you say. You, you can't actually sell these ideas to people on their own merits because they're authoritarian and against our interests. So you mm. have to, mm. it is interesting the way they always have to appeal to this liberal democracy that still theoretically exists. Is that what you meant, yeah, though? Or, yeah, that is basically what I meant. Yeah, or they have to kind of conjure up these kind of, um, uh, you know, these, these, um, scenarios in which we're all going to die unless we do exactly what they say um but yes i think i think what what in order to in order for our movement um to kind of restore liberty and democracy um across the english-speaking world and beyond to succeed we need something like the martin luther king led american civil rights movement that succeeded in part because it appealed to values which um american public officials professed to have but weren't living up to they were they were holding their feet to the fire they were saying the these are the values enshrined in the american constitution these the the, 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 the this is the side that supposedly triumphed in the american civil war this is what you all profess to believe in um well act you know um, um make good on those beliefs show that you you actually hold them um, by, you know, by getting rid of um, all these impediments to the participation of African-Americans in elections and the rest of it. Um, that's that, that's how I think we can succeed. We, it, when I say appeal to, you know, their better angels, what I mean is appeal to the values that they profess to believe in. And, you know, they'll then have a choice. Either they'll have to kind of start um, acting on those beliefs, or they'll have to kind of admit that they no longer hold them and try and defend whatever alternative it is that they actually do believe in. Yeah. And we, we could get into civil rights because some some conservatives actually think civil rights was all, was all a leftist uh thing and was actually a bad idea even some black american conservatives we really almost don't have time to get into that it's, it's very controversial maybe that's for another day but um do you want to do this sort of fun story very quickly i say fun <laughs> i've set it up as a fun story but it's woody allen defends Luis rubiales saying he wasn't raping her; it was just a kiss it's hard to understand that a person can lose their job for kissing someone so we covered this kiss before the F- spanish fa guy who kissed the the female player and everyone was saying it was basically a terrible thing and me too. And Woody Allen's come out to defend him. Apparently Prince Andrew and Harvey Weinstein have also chipped in. That's a mere joke. But it's not the best guy to come out and defend you on this particular topic, is it? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's like um uh if 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 uh, if 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 the if an outrage mob was coming for you, Nick, and I leapt to your defense, you'd think crikey. Yeah. That's the final nail in that's my coffin. That's the cancelled um, guy with, with the the laddish humour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, Council for five public I, positions. We don't want Toby Young defending us. You know, but I, I think, um, you know, if I was Luis, uh, what is it again? Um, Rubiales. Uh, uh, Rubiales, yeah. Um, I wouldn't be, you know, I, would, I wouldn't actually think, oh, God, that's all I need when Woody Allen defended me. I mean, you know, um, uh, he is, after all, one of America's greatest living directors. Um, some of his films are out-and-out masterpieces. Yeah. So is um, Roman Polanski, yes. but it's the same problem. Well, you no, know, not exactly, because um, in, in Polanski's case, I don't think there's any question that he had intercourse with, what, a 13-year-old girl. Good point, whereas um, I've never believed the, the Woody Allen I've never believed it either, thing. no. There no. is, though, the Sun Yi thing, which is always there, which is they say, oh, it's his adopted daughter. Actually, technically, it wasn't. It was Mia Farrow and Andre Previn's adopted daughter, but it's still a bit odd to then... Have a relationship with that. I suppose the counter to that is, well, they have stayed together an extraordinary amount of time. Yes, and I don't think there's any suggestion that they had 
sex when she was underage. I mean, of course, there's something sort of creepy about it. <laughs> um, uh, but but um, but you know, it, it, it's it's. It, it's it's not as creepy, I don't think, as some of the things he's been accused of, and the the evid- I don't think the evidence that um, he's done those things is particularly strong. I, I remember not. reading quite a few kind of articles which kind of forensically um, examined that evidence, and um, uh, so you know, I, I'm not sure that it's fair to say this is you know this is the nail in the coffin for Lewis Robert, whatever it is. Um, but it is in public because... perception. It's not, if you actually look into it, like you say, yeah, it looks like Mia Farrow coached the girl. It looks like there's no physical way it could have taken place, blah, blah, blah. But also, but just on the public face of it, with people's perception of Woody Allen now, it doesn't, it doesn't seem great, does it? I suppose not. Um, but uh, I think his actual point, you know, I mean, I mean, he he didn't say it was completely excused. Interestingly, if you look at if you look at his remarks in Toto, um, Woody Allen didn't say it was completely excusable behaviour. He said um, uh, he he crossed a line, uh, and he should apologise to her, uh, and maybe make amends. I think he suggested buying her some flowers, um, but um, uh, he thought it was just. It wasn't. It wasn't a heinous enough misdemeanor to justify this guy losing his job, which I think is fair enough. Uh, I know I, I'm probably going to get it in the neck from my wife and daughter for saying that, uh, and I know we've discussed it on previous episodes, and I've said that it's difficult to think why there should be exceptions. Maybe there shouldn't be exceptions. You know, um, of course, what he did um, uh, was wrong, uh, but you know, there, there, there's a question of proportionality, isn't there, in in in, in what the penalty should be, and it does seem a little harsh particularly as um you know you see the photos of her laughing about it afterwards yeah, yeah, yeah. on the coach showing people the video exactly and laughing it's not it wasn't it wasn't the kind of behavior of someone suffering from you know ptsd because they'd almost been raped no, um no. so uh yeah so i, I don't know I, I, I i'm not entirely on his side but um has he has he has he gone yet I, I saw that i don't think he has has he is he suspended i saw that the um spanish male football team had called for his resignation <clears throat> Don't cook to your wife and daughter, Toby. He, he, she had changed her story three times. She was seen in a video, there, as you say, laughing about it, showing people a meme. So why is she there saying, oh, I didn't have consent and playing this weird Me Too game? It's kind of kind of zombie of the Me Too movement coming back. Me Too movement, maybe there was a need for it, you, many say, but then obviously Harvey Weinstein was a creep, but then it, it became excessive and just became about accusing men. All kinds of men got cancelled unfairly. And then, that, then it sort of died away. And then it, now it's come back via the sort of like it's a parasite on the back of women's football because women's football can't be criticized at all. So she's doing her own sort of me too here. But yeah. Oh yeah. One hour ago, he's been uh, sacked. Spanish Federation. Has he? Okay. Yeah. The Spanish. Yeah. It looks like it. Oh, well, breaking. Uh, it's interesting because we, we, we were, we were, we were talking about last week or possibly the week before it's been going on for a while now, whether, you know, holding, holding fast, refusing to budge, forcing, you know, um, the organisation that wants you to resign to either sack you um, or back down, uh, whether that was going to be an effective strategy. Um, uh, it turns out probably not. If he's now been sacked, then maybe he'll sue them and, and get a lot of money out of them. Did you see that his um, uncle gave an interview to um, uh, a Spanish newspaper, El Confidencial, um, a 4,700 word interview in which he talked about um, why he disliked um, uh uh, uh, Luis, and he said that uh, he said his nephew. Um, uh, he said that uh, 
He said that he's someone obsessed with power, luxury, money, and even women. And at one point, they both worked for the Spanish FA, and they fell out because the uncle disapproved of the way his nephew treated the staff. So certainly, Luis doesn't doesn't emerge from this in a particularly good light. So yeah, I did um, see that. I'm not uh, sure he has been sacked. Actually, I think I got that wrong. There's the danger of announcing okay. things live while you're trying to do a podcast while hosting it. I think I think George or Jorge, however you pronounce it, Vilda has been sacked. Amid Luis Rubiales' kiss row, but I don't think Rubiales has actually been set. Okay, okay. So he he, he lives on to so, fight another day. Lads, lads, lads. <laughs> Men survive. <laughs> <I love> the- <laughs> yeah, it's not like, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure he, I'm not saying he's this great guy. I just think, yeah, it's been o- overblown. But but I don't really see why what, what Vilda's got to do with it, but I don't know enough about it. We, this whole podcast is dedicated to the ins and outs of Spanish football figures. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to go into that next week. It was it was last week we talked about it. It's it's a running story. Anyway, should we move on and do our other section, which people love, which is the X Files. So, quite a good X Files this week because Elon Musk is suing the ADL. So the hashtag ban the ADL was trending, and it's obviously controversial because there's this idea if you attack the ADL you're just anti-Semitic, which, which of course isn't true because they've become this leftist censorship group, essentially. And there's some pretty shocking stuff if you go through Musk's claims. I'm going to see if I can find them now. But essentially, he's claiming that they may be responsible for destroying half of Twitter's value, which is where he gets the $22 billion figure from. And he, so he says here, so someone shared an article that said, judge finds ADL 10.5 million in Colorado defamation suit. Musk replies, interesting. In our case, they would potentially be on the hook for destroying half the value of the company, so roughly 22 billion. And he later says, based on what we've heard from advertisers, ADL seems to be responsible for most of our revenue loss. Giving them maximum benefit of the doubt, I don't see any scenario where they're responsible for less than 10% of the value destruction, so around 4 billion. Document discovery of all communications between the ADL and advertisers will tell the full story. So that is... The lawsuit and ADL are extraordinary, Toby. I mean, they 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 cost Zuckerberg sixty billion market cap. So this is one point people make. They say, look, Facebook loses sixty billion in market value in two days as advertising boycott continues. So this was the ADL seemed to be behind this. So Zuckerberg is a Jewish business owner, as people have pointed out. There was another article from Tablet pointing out that when um, Al Sharpton seemed to sort of fan the flames of a riot and, uh, and attacks on Jewish people following the accidental murder of a, or, or accidental death of a black person by a Hasidic Jew's car hitting him. Al Sharpton came in and stoked all that, and yet Jonathan Greenblatt defended or worked with Al Sharpton after that. So people say these things. It's not actually about being Jewish, and actually the argument there was the ADL follows trendy leftist politics rather than defending Jewish people. And if you look at their website, they have this bizarre website with an extraordinary list of things that count as hate. And a lot of them are about sort of prison groups and, and little gestures that are used by like an Idaho based prison group. And, you know, it's, it's like it's very extensive stuff. And you go, OK, fine, if that's what you want to document. But then this really ridiculous one, hate on display, anti-Antifa images. 
So they make this claim that white supremacist, anti-left or sinistrophobic symbology especially targets far-left and anarchist activists who have dedicated themselves to actively opposing, exposing white supremacists. So the claim is there, Toby, if you don't like Antifa, you're sinistrophobic, which is a term normally used for a fear of things on the left, like objects or left-handed people, which includes me. So you'd be phobic of those people. But they are using it on the ADL website to suggest if you don't like the violent gang of weirdos that is Antifa, you have a phobia and you are part of a of hate and you're basically a white supremacist. Yes. Um, well, you know, um, more power to Elon Musk. Um, let's hope he succeeds. Um, I think the he was talking a couple of weeks ago about um, finding out who was funding the Centre for Countering Digital Hate and going after them and blaming the Centre for Countering Digital Hate for the collapse in Twitter's advertising revenue. Um, so um, it feels a bit as though he's trying to find someone to blame so he can sue them because the value of um, this asset has kind of declined so dramatically since he bought it. And I think the difficulty he'll have um, in, in you know, um, uh, succeeding in these lawsuits is that I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure he'll be able to prove a direct connection. Um, uh, even if he can show that um, the ADL um, uh, uh, wrote to companies advertising on Twitter and described Twitter post-Musk's takeover as being a cesspit of hate, um, that won't necessarily prove that that's the that's the sole reason the advertiser has stopped advertising. Maybe it'll be enough. But I would have thought that the problem is that most executives who work for these companies, um, uh, uh, most of the, even most of their um, board members, um, are completely on board with the kind of woke agenda. Um, and it doesn't take much to persuade them that, you know, Elon Musk, someone who now has become a kind of... Um, alt-right folk hero um, is promoting hate on Twitter. Um, and then it's now become, you know, an unsafe place to advertise. I mean, you know, the, insofar as the ADL will have had a role, they'll have been completely pushing it an open door. I mean, I wonder if that, but that may be a difficult defense to make, you know, you, you, you know, will, will ADL's defense attorney get up and say, um, no, it wasn't ADL. This was just groupthink. They all thought the same way. Um, they were just telling them what they already knew. Um, who who knows? But I guess if they if they did if they did circulate you know dodgy data about the prevalence of hateful tweets post Musk's takeover, um, then I imagine you know uh, may, maybe he'll succeed. But twenty two billion. I mean, does does the ADL even have twenty two billion? How rich is it? Can't have that. Well, much. I don't know, but I think they went beyond that as well. I think I think I mean look look what he says here. Advertisers avoid controversy, so all that is needed for ADL to crush our US and European ad revenue is to make unfounded accusations. They have much less power in Asia, so our ad revenue there is still strong. This controversy causes advertisers to pause, but that pause is permanent until ADL gives the green light, which they will not do without us agreeing to secretly suspend or shadow ban any account they don't like. That is a relationship they've had with X slash Twitter for many years. Presumably, they have that with all Western search or social media orgs. And the fact they were able to pressure Zuckerberg, he didn't, you know, into censoring Trump. And the fact they were able to pressure Twitter like this before Musk took over, it is shocking that they have this level of power. 
And he says here, ADL has pushed hard for us to shut down accounts like Chea's, which is libs of TikTok, even though mm. it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, which is their supposed charter. And then he mm. says, she says, Elon, would you consider releasing some of the communications between X and the ADL so we can see their true intentions? I'm definitely interested in seeing their request to ban my account. Great point. Musk says a giant data dump would clear the air. So would that help with the case, Toby, if they had all these files on ADL just saying you must shut down these people? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think it. I think it probably it probably will help. It'll certainly embarrass them. And if he, he if he if he does kind of uh, make all this data public, that'd be incredibly helpful. Um, and I'm sure there'll be you know um, a, a goldmine of stories about ADL trying to censor accounts which um, which are far beyond you know their remit. Um, but I, I think th- I think this is how you know um, the woke left operates um, when trying to. You know, when threatening um, social media platforms, news publishing sites with um, demonetization, the threat is if you continue to publish these views, um, we will make sure that um, your advertising revenue is hit hard. Um, in, and and it, it, so it's really, it's really, it's sort of a form of blackmail. And I've experienced it myself. I mean, um, NewsGuard, uh, an organisation set up by Steve Brill, um, was until recently. Um, part funded by the American Department of Defense. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it, 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 it ranks news publishing sites um, according to um, how, mu- how reliable they are, how trustworthy they are. And I was contacted by someone at NewsGuard um, and um, asked about various pieces um, which it claimed contained false or misleading information, misinformation, disinformation, and, and so forth. And um, and I, I went through all these pieces one by one. And, and um, it, in every case, um, we hadn't published something that was straightforwardly false or misleading. Rather, it was a difference of opinion, and in particular, a difference of opinion about how to interpret particular data particular research papers, uh, mainly about um, uh, the COVID vaccines, but also about climate change data. Um, And uh, it was really, they were saying, we are the custodians uh, of how to interpret, you know, scientific data. Um, And if you disagree with us, if you dispute our interpretation, um, then you're guilty of publishing misinformation or disinformation. And if you continue to challenge the official interpretation of this data, we will make sure you're demonetized. So they effectively were saying to me, either you take down these articles and agree never to interpret the data in the way you have again, in a way that challenges the kind of pro-vaccine, pro-climate emergency narrative, or we're going to demonetize you. So it was very much the kind of shakedown operation that Elon Musk is describing when he describes how ADL operates. And he's exactly right about the pause being permanent. I mean, when um, uh, what when 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 um, stop funding hate targeted GB News when it first launched, um, uh, and all these advertisers who were advertising on GB News uh, stopped advertising. They didn't say they were stopping permanently. They said they were pausing their advertising uh, so they could make um, a more considered assessment of whether GB News was the right vehicle to advertise their products, uh, and they've never come back. So in fact, it was permanent. Exactly. And I recall a statement or sorry, a tweet from Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of, of, of the ADL. And I wish I could find it. I was trying to find it yesterday for ages. And I couldn't find it where when Musk took over Twitter, he put out this bizarre tweet that was basically like, do we have to take this guy out, people? What do you think? It was, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what it was. It was saying, yeah, I don't like the way Twitter's going with Musk. And it was almost those words. It was just so mafia. Like you say, a shakedown. It was, are we going to have to 
the the arrogance of it, the idea that they're just going to remove the, the Elon Musk from this platform he just bought. That's how it sounded to me. And I wish I could find the exact wording because it was so shocking and, and gangsterish. And this is how mm. Green Black thinks, it seems to me. Got, were you about to say something? Oh, I was going to say um, yeah, another instance of, um, of how unreasonable and dogmatic uh, these organizations are. Um, when I was first approached by NewsGuard and they flagged up maybe a dozen articles they claimed contained false or misleading information, of course, I disputed that claim in every case. But I did say what I'll do is where these articles have been fact-checked, I'll link to the fact check claiming they contain false or misleading information below the article. And um, where we've disputed that fact check, I'll also link to our dispute. And where there isn't a fact check, I'll summarize your criticism of the article and I'll publish a brief reply to that criticism. So in every case, all 12 of these articles you've cited are supposedly being beyond the pale. Um, I will publish a postscript, which will give people access to the alternative point of view, including your point of view. And I thought that would be enough to satisfy them. And I wanted to satisfy them because they'd only given me a rating. They'd only given the Daily Skeptic a rating of 75 out of 100, which means you're too toxic for advertisers to touch. And I hope to get it above the acceptable threshold and bring in a bit of advertising. So I was cooperative. And I thought proposing a very reasonable compromise, you know, and I thought they'd be happy with that. They could say to their shareholders, well, we didn't get them to take down these offending articles, but they have published they have published links to alternative perspectives. Um, uh, and I thought that would be enough. They could show that they were making a difference, having an impact. Uh, and instead, the guy wrote back to me and said, we've reduced your ranking from 75 out of 100 to 37 and a half out of 100. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, why on earth have you reduced it? I've, I've made, I've, I've, I've attached all these postscripts to the articles you flagged up. I've, I've, I've reprinted all the criticisms you've made about them beneath the articles. You know, okay, I didn't take them down, but that's because I dispute that they were actually false or misleading but i've you know there is there is a discussion about exactly that issue beneath each article and i have linked to the alternative point of view that you want to promote surely that's promoting a debate that is a mature way to respond why have you halved my ranking and they said well because you didn't take the articles down toby you try to appeal to the better angels of their nature which proves <laughs> that's that true i did they're not there and it proves everything yeah. i've said about pretty much every topic the u.s election you're too optimistic and too nice about these people toby they just want to crush you completely and they, they're not open anyway. to reason. And can I just say finally on this ADL thing, I should also point out, I think Lewis Schaefer, who I work with on Headliners, would say it's bad for the Jews. This is a thing he says quite a lot as a Jewish person because this, of course, is going to lead to a lot of hatred to the ADL and that can spill over into other things. So I do want to make that point. At the risk of being satirized because Norm MacDonald had the brilliant joke, my concern is what if an you know, Islamic extremist blew up a, a nuclear bomb and killed millions and millions of people? the backlash against peaceful Muslims would be terrible. So this is sort of a joke. So <laughs> you can always joke about worrying about the backlash, but I do think when ADL behaves like this, it is bound to feed into ideas of, of you know, anti-Semitism and like Jews controlling things. It, it, because they, this group is controlling things. It's controlling it like any leftist, woke, censorious group does, but it's not going to help with that claim because they happen to be Jewish. What, what do you think? Yeah, I can't see it, but I, I don't... I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure I really associate the ADL with just combating anti-Semitism anymore. As you say, it's gone so far beyond its original brief and its original reason for existing. It's a bit like the Southern Poverty Law Centre, you know, um, started yeah. out as a philanthropic 
organization helping those who couldn't afford legal representation and has become a kind of tool of woke enforcement. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think uh, so. I'm not sure that in people's minds, I'm not sure that many people will think, hang on a minute. Is this an is this an example of the Jews controlling the media? Um, because, uh, well, I mean, clearly, Ka- Kanye you know, will. Well, that's true. <laughs> By the way, we haven't discussed um, Kanye's kind of exhibitionist behaviour, along with Bianca on his recent trip to Venice. I don't know if you've seen some of those pictures, but she looked at, at first glance, she looks naked in all of them, and it turns out she is wearing this kind of sheer flesh-coloured catsuit. Um, yes. But it's pretty, pretty odd. I wonder what you, as as a, as a long-standing Kanye fan, I wondered how, how you felt about his <laughs> new girlfriend and this exhibitionism. Hasn't he married her? Maybe he's married. Yeah, is people he, have said to wife, him, like, okay. you know, Kanye, some of this behavior is not very Christian. And he, he sort of answered, yeah, but she's really hot. And, um, yeah, the pictures of her, what, you, you, did you see the pictures on the boat? Yeah. Yeah, shenanigans afoot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I did notice. I don't know what else I can say of that apart from, you know, yeah, that's his wife, Bianca Sensori, okay. speaking of sensoriousness. And um, what can I say, Toby, other than be careful if you're famous and you're on a boat with your new hot wife there may be people filming. It's not. It's a quite a niche concern that might not be of relevance to too many of our listeners. That no, well, I think. Hang on a second. You're you're, you're implying that um, uh, they were spied on by the Paps, whereas it all seemed to be, you know, um, done in plain sight. I mean, it seems like it's just a kind of massive grab for attention. Okay. Um, anyway, that may be right. I haven't followed it enough, Toby. I mean. Obviously, it sounds like you've looked at the pictures quite a lot, but I haven't followed in as much detail as you. Um, do you want to quickly cover this other ex-viral story, and then we'll uh, do Will? But this is this is this lady called Julia. Now, is it Mazur? I don't want to get it wrong. It's Mazur, I think. But it was just a a, a video that went viral on Twitter. Yeah, Julia Mazur, which people weren't even linking it to her name. I had to do some research on that. So she put out this video, and it's had 30.5 million views at the time of recording on Matt Walsh's Twitter, where she was saying, look, I'm 29, I don't have kids, I don't have a normal family life, but, you know, I can do what I want, I can get up at 10, 15, I can just watch reruns of Real Housewives, I can make shashuka, is it? Some sort of, uh, yeah. what is that? Yeah, that's, it's, it's not, what is that? Yeah, I, I've forgotten already. It's some sort of baking, it's beyond my world. It's, uh, it's not something I would ever do. I think it's a, is it a kind of... It's a dish of eggs poached in a sauce of tomatoes, olive oil, peppers, onion, and garlic. So, okay. yeah, shashuka, shakshuka. So she said she can learn how to make that. You know, she's free of all these things. People pointed out she looked quite sad while saying it. And Matt Walsh quite ungenerously wrote, her life doesn't revolve around family and kids, so instead it revolves around TV shows and pop stars. Worst of all, she's too stupid to realize how depressing this is. It was a pretty brutal Walsh uh, reply. And then she replied to him saying, you know, why, why is she, you know, he's bullying, he's just bullying me and blah, blah, blah. And um, if you look and do some deep research on her Twitter, on her TikTok, which I did, you find out that even back in May, she's talking about her breakup and being single. So being seven months ago, so seven months ago from May. So she's obviously had a massive breakup. She's struggling to get over. She's talking about being 29, hitting 30. Her life's been turned upside down. So I don't think Matt Walsh well, really bullied yeah. it. What were you going to say? Because I have a lot more. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, carry on. I don't know where we get to. Because my point is, I don't think Matt Walsh bullied her, but it wasn't particularly nice what he said. And my take, Toby, was that 
she was just someone struggling with a breakup. It's actually a pretty normal thing. It's such an online take to think this is weird. It's a very normal thing. It's a girl struggling with a breakup. The only difference is that if you're a woman and if you're a liberal, I'm going to make this claim that you might be a bit more likely to say something like, society has these repressive expectations. Why should I have a family and children? Men are more likely to sort of take it on the chin and say, oh, I'm at fault. This is my theory. This is one of my misogynist theories. But also, it's a liberal knee-jerk thing to say, oh, society's at fault. Whereas, see, I would say something like, you know, I don't live like that either. I'm single, but I'm not saying it's the right way to be. I'm saying probably you people should have families and I'm just a sort of outlier and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not advocating it and I'm not making, I'm not um, pretending that I'm having a better time than I am where she's clearly sad about her breakup, but she's selling it as I can do this, I can do this, a bit like Chelsea Handler, a more likable Chelsea Handler, I would say, saying, hey, I just love my life. But I will also add another caveat, Toby, that the conservatives with perfect textbook family lives can be quite annoying and alienating because you look at like Matt Walsh and more charmingly Michael Knowles. And I just sometimes think, yeah, these guys have got their family lives sorted out. I'm too weird to have that. Well done to them. But it can be a little bit like, and then they're telling everyone else how to be. Now, the caveat encounter that would be, well, they're inspirational for people to follow. And that's also true. But basically, just to finish, I would say, Matt Walsh is being a bit, a bit of a dick, but it's also disingenuous to claim you're subverting social norms or societal norms when actually you're just a bit sad. Yeah, I think um, you're being a bit too charitable to her. Oh, and I rare. think that if, 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 yeah, I think if your reading of her video, which Matt Walsh criticised, is correct, then she's smarting from her breakup. And she's defensively talking about how great it is to be single and childless, because really deep down, she wants to be in a relationship. So it's just it's sort of understandable that she should try and dress up her unhappiness in this kind of defense, these defensive protestations about how happy she is. Uh, If that's the case, then it does seem a bit like bullying on Matt Walsh's part couldn't he have been a bit more sensitive or just left it alone poor girl you know she clearly wants to have a you know husband and family but she just broke up with the guy so she's pretending she doesn't um but no my my if you actually I watched her video and she really does go on and on about these opportunities she has because she doesn't have any children and she's not in a relationship but there's a particular emphasis on not having any children and it seems like it to me it felt like a kind of pro-natalist kind of polemic sorry an anti-natalist polemic um uh, 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 she was entering that debate she was actually saying she doesn't think you know um women of her age should actually have families they shouldn't have children think of all the benefits you can enjoy if you don't have children and given that given that that is quite a live issue at the moment you know um uh uh you know it's it's a kind of it's become a kind of um hot button issue within the culture war and we're worried about kind of below level replacement populations across the west uh and thinking about the kind of problems we're storing up for ourselves as a result of that um given that it is a kind of hot button debating point that i think she was actually entering the public debate by making that video in which case matt walsh is perfectly justified in in you know in pushing back quite hard because it is a public debate she's entered the arena this is a culture war topic if you're going to weigh in on it expect to take your licks well i agree and disagree i mean Yes, he is justified in commenting. It's fine that he comments. That's why I said I don't think he was really bullying her. He was just being a tad un- uncharitable. He, he, is, he has every right to comment because she has entered the public arena with this viral video. She does have a TikTok. She has a podcast, so that's fine. 
But what you're talking about, Toby, is just cope. It's pure cope. She's saying it's great to not have kids. What she's done, this is my theory, this is what I was trying to say. I call it a sort of feminine liberal knee-jerk reaction. Being sad about her breakup and the fact she's about to hit 30 and has no boyfriend or husband and family, she's then attaching it to all these things. She's probably heard her friends say this. In other TikToks, she speaks about talking to her friends about it endlessly about her breakup. They probably said to her, no, but think of all the things you can do. You can make shakshuka. So what she's done is she's sort of projected this out into a political sort of sociological realm. And she said, "Ah, no, I can do all these things. What a man would do is say, oh, yeah, what did I get wrong there? Why Why did that go wrong? Maybe I need to go to the gym. Maybe I need to forget about women for a bit, go to the gym, whatever. That's how men tend to think about these things. Maybe I'm a loser. But it's what women tend to do, is my theory. It just goes like, oh, you know, why should we? They always like talking about the exceptions to the rule and I can be happy like this. What would be the, what she really should do is say, I'm not happy. I hate, I hate this breakup and I want to have f- husband and kids. What can I do? What can I, you know, how, was there anything I did wrong or was he just a dick? And just analyze it. But what, yeah, what she has done is, like you say, enter the debate. But she's doing that. My reading from going deep research on her TikTok is that she's doing that as pure cope because she is, I mean, she's still talking about her relationship and, and hitting 30. She looks quite sad. And in May, she's talking about it being seven months ago she broke up and she's still talking to her friends about it. So she can't get over this breakup. That's why I have sympathy. But that's also why I say she's she's now pretending that it, she's happy and we shouldn't have kids. And yeah, and that does put her into the political realm and, yeah, and where she's now been slapped back out of it but maybe i don't know let's see what she does from now so i don't know what do you think yeah no i think um again i think you're i think you're i'm a nice guy you're being you'll be you'll be here you're being much more sympathetic um to her than than matt walsh was that's for sure um uh, and um i think you're you're i mean your, your your contrast of the typical female reaction to the typical male reaction i think is the opposite of what i think of as the typical male and female reaction i think of you know um, like it, it, you know, it, the classic the classic example is if you are men and teenage girls and teenage boys who do poorly in their GCSEs, um, you know, um, uh, the girls tend to blame themselves, um, whereas the boys blame other people. And when they do well, the girls think you know they just got lucky, whereas the boys think it's because they're brilliant. So usually it's the opposite of how you're describing it. But yeah, uh, well, it's a slightly different point. I mean, yeah, I could see that. But if you look at that sort of mere men overestimating their abilities is a thing. But if you look at any debate on something like Pearl, the women are always arguing, yeah, but what about it? Men will just go, yeah, that's how it is. That's They'll accept things like, oh, women want a guy over six foot. And they'll go, yeah, yeah, it sucks. But they'll just accept it. Or, you know, or women's expectations about money, but they're realistic about it. And Pearl did a thing where they, she sort of took, uh, it's a bit too complicated and boring to get into. But if you watch her videos, you find that women are basically in denial and the men are much more open to it. And a classic example is if you call your mate fat, he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've got a bit fat. You're right. And men call each other fat bastards. Call women that. They invent the body positive movement and plus size <laughs> models, you know, because they don't, they don't want to live in reality. So that's my theory there. I mean, but you kind of, it's weird. I'm, being, I'm defending her while also being more misogynist than you at the same time. <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a tough a, line to walk. It's a, quite a conjuring trick you're pulling off there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I just felt sympathetic for her on, a, on an individual level. You know, she had this break, which is obviously struggling with it. Yeah. Then, you know, but you shouldn't then go, therefore, I don't need children. My take has always been, don't live like me. I'm living wrong. Live like Matt Walsh with his million kids. But uh, I, mm. I can't do that because I'm a weirdo. That's been my take. So I think it's a much more honest take. But um, all right, that was old Julia Mazur. Maybe she'll pop up again in the future. Maybe I'll change my mind in the future. Let's see. But uh, yeah, Matt Walsh, I defended him over the Dylan Mulvaney thing when I don't think he was being too harsh at all. But people are attacking him again are the same kind of people who attacked him over that. Mm. Anyway, mm. Toby, do you want to do our first advert before we go to Will? Yes. 
So um, this is an ad from our most loyal, most longstanding sponsor, um, who I think over the past year um, has sponsored more more episodes than not. Uh, and I'm talking, of course, about Thor Holt. Although he enjoys helping others generate more revenue, Thor isn't personally driven by money. In fact, I've known him for a few years now, and he's been a staunch volunteer for Free Speech Union members who've been cancelled since our launch in 2020. Back in his 20s, Thor was a voluntary mentor for Bernardo's, and in his 30s, he worked with a charity dedicated to reducing modern-day slavery in India. In his 40s, Thor co-founded a coffee company for a charity supporting Christian victims of persecution around the world. Thor turns 50 in September and plans to celebrate by building on his family rehab legacy at North House Croft on the tiny island of Papa Store. To that end, listen to his raucous conversation with the famously cancelled comedian, actor and entrepreneur Dan O'Reilly, a.k.a. Dapper Laughs, uh, which he did for Thor's Hippie, P- Hippie Hut podcast. That's Thor's Hippie Hut podcast. Dapper and Thor are certainly no saints, but they aim to help men who feel hopeless and mask it with substance or alcohol abuse. If you can listen to Thor's and you can listen to Thor's Hippie Hut podcast on iTunes slash Spotify, and you can say hello to Thor at at Northhouse Croft on Instagram. And Hippie Hut is spelt H-I-P-P-I-H-U-T. And a big thanks to Thor for um, sponsoring, I think, more than half of the episodes of The Weekly Skeptic in our first year. All right. Thanks, Thor. And let's go over to you now, Toby, with Will, with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Dr. Will Jones to talk about some of the biggest stories that have appeared in The Daily Skeptic in the past week. So, Will, the first story you wanted to talk about was this um, new study in The Lancet, which explodes the myth that asymptomatic sufferers of COVID-19 are infectious. That's right. Yeah, this, this is a, this is a major study in the top journal, The Lancet, and it's from the team actually at Imperial College London. So not not one that you'd necessarily expect to be debunking aspects of the science and the official narrative. But there you go. That's what we have here. And um, and this is the res- these are results from the Human Challenge trial uh, that we've reported on before that was done started back in 2021. That's where they deliberately infected deliberately infected 36 uh, young healthy people with. SARS-CoV-2. They obviously, they were so worried about this deadly disease that they deliberately infected 36 people with it and then followed, followed them up. And uh, their first paper from that remarkably showed that uh, uh, just only half of the people that they stuck a globule of infected uh, in, infected liquid into their nose, only half of them actually got sick um, and tested positive for the virus. Half of them, despite having a globule of COVID stuck in their nose for several minutes, didn't get sick at all or test positive. So that was their, that was the first remarkable finding. That was from last last year. Uh, the new study out blows up uh, this myth of asymptomatic spread. It shows that just, and the headline finding is that just 7% of the virus emissions uh, that they that they captured and recorded in the air, that 7% of them were from people who hadn't had their symptoms yet. So 93%, so almost all of the virus emissions uh, were from people who ha- had their symptoms had started. Uh, so this explodes the idea that uh, that people were spreading the virus to a lot, to any great extent uh, before they started getting symptoms, um, and therefore just expose this whole idea that was put out 
there was the underpinned social distancing, the idea that, that the restrictions had to apply to everybody. We saw huge numbers of posters uh, from the NHS and from the government saying around one in three people with COVID-19 don't have any symptoms but can still pass it on. That was the claim that a third of the spread, so a huge amount of it, was due to people who didn't have symptoms. And this this study, uh, which is very rigorous because it's done by deliberately infecting people and really following them up closely, uh, really debunks that, shows that it really is a small minority, as, as sceptics have, many sceptics have been pointing out since very early on. Won't um, defenders of the idea of asymptomatic spread um, point out that this is a pretty small sample size and therefore pretty underpowered and we can't really draw any meaningful conclusions from it? Uh, that objection will fail. It's not an objection that's, uh, uh, it's not a limitation that's made anything of in the in the paper. And that's because those considerations don't apply uh, when you're deliberately infecting people and um, and studying and and studying them really really closely, it's, it's more like a laboratory um, study. Um, you uh, you you know that you know that these thirty six people uh, have um, have been exposed, have been heavily exposed to the virus. You know that they've uh, that they've got it, um, and so you, so even though the, though the sample is small, it's still a solid uh, scientific. Uh, results obviously more people uh, would give more solid results uh, but you wouldn't expect them to change uh, considerably and the other the other aspect of this because this was so that the the main finding was about pre-symptomatic spread some people say well what about asymptomatic spread that's where someone tests positive for the virus so they're said to be infected uh, but literally never has any symptoms could they be spreaders well also the study found that actually of the 18 people who tested positive in the study only one of them had no symptoms at all now it's true that that, that, that that person was also emitting the virus. So you could say that that does give some small backup to the idea that people who are entirely asymptomatic could emit the virus and could spread it. But the point is that the proportion of the sample was only one out of the 18. So very, very, very small. Okay. Um, so the next story you wanted to talk about was what's behind Sadiq Khan's expansion of ULAs. Um, and um, it isn't just about raising money for his coffers. Um, there's another dimension to it, which is um, this C40 Cities program. Do you want to tell us something about that? Yeah, that's right. This is something that we, we published, Daily Skeptic published two articles on this this week, one from Chris, uh, uh, Chris Morrison, uh, our environment editor, and one from uh, David Craig, and, uh, and both of them highlighting this this fact that uh, Sadiq Khan, uh, as you say, he's the he's the chair of this global network of city mayors uh, called C40, which is backed by, as Chris puts it, numerous hard left billionaire foundations, and it has a whole list of aims. Uh, that it's aiming to achieve uh, removing cars from cities. Chris also highlights uh, a suggested daily meat allowance of just 44 grams and overall calorie allowance or rations that are lower than the rations that were allowed in the Second World War. And these are the serious uh, proposals uh, that this major global group of city mayors, uh, C40 as they call it, although it's actually got, um, I believe, over 100 uh, or nearly 100 uh, mayors involved. And just to be clear, the limits on meat consumption, calorie intake, etc., they're limits that these mayors have signed up to achieving by 2030. Is that right? C40 published a headline report. It actually published it in 2019. So it's actually a few years ago, before the pandemic, in fact. Uh, but they re-emphasized it early this year, a progressive, as they call it, target uh, for 2030. So it's a target they've signed up to, um, daily allowances of 
uh, and other other things Chris mentions. Only one short haul flight every three years. Only eight new clothing items per year. Uh, private cars only for one in five people. Uh, so a real agenda against prosperity, against wealth, against a uh, good standard of living, against private cars, just against everything, um, everything that we're used to. Really, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like living in a in a, an awful version of um, of Soviet Russia, really, doesn't it? it well, it does sound quite grim, um, and presumably this partly explains Sadiq Khan's resolve, his unwillingness to abandon the expansion of the ULEZ scheme even when he came under pressure from the leader of his own party to do so, and even after it became apparent that it was electoral poison and could, in fact, he is hoping, jeopardise his chances of re-election next year. Um, but uh, he can't abandon the target. He can't abandon the scheme because um, he's chair of this group of mayors who are all committed to it. Exactly. Um, it, it gives another insight into his motivation. Why is he doing something that's so electorally disastrous, so unpopular, uh, almost impossible to implement, it seems, with the amount of vandalism uh, that that, and the tax that they're, that they're suffering? Why has he done it? Well, it seems that, as you say, he's the chair. So he has to set, he'll be under um, psychological, political pressure from this uh, within this group to, uh, to set the standard, to not back down. Um, and you have to imagine that he's he's mindful of his career after, as yes. all these people are, um, as everyone is, I guess. Uh, but yeah. as uh, the politicians often are, of their career after uh, their current office, and mm. he'll be uh, he'll be thinking of where he goes next. Yeah, some sinecure in the climate industrial complex, no doubt. Um, so the last story you're going to talk about, Will, is um, a story we published this morning by Chris Morrison. Um, uh, and it's about, a, I think, a study showing that 40% of apparent global warming since 1850 is due to urban heat corruptions. Do you want to explain what they are? Yeah, that's right. So this is a major study. It's been published, it's peer-reviewed and published in a journal called Climate. Uh, so a, a good scientific journal. Uh, it's by 37 scientists from 18 countries. And what they found is that they've looked at the way, the thermometers, basically, the way that the temperature has been measured uh, since 1850. They've looked at the trends in it. Uh, and in particular, they've looked at thermometers that are located in cities uh, and, and thermometers that are not located in cities to see how much of the measurements we've taken and therefore the trends that we've been reported how much of that is due basically to the fact that thermometers are sitting in cities that have got bigger over that time uh, and have therefore have got warmer. I mean, we're not only talking a small effect of warming, relatively small effect of warming, but since the overall warming uh, since 1850 is also very small, you know, we're talking degree, a degree, so fractions of degrees we're talking about, uh, it's enough to have this urban heat corruption of the temperature record um, and therefore to give the impression uh, that the world is getting warmer uh, because of effects in the climate when in fact it's just where the thermometers are sited because they're in growing industrial cities and this paper calculates uh, using rigorous scientific methods and comparisons uh, with thermometers that aren't affected by by this effect um, that that corruption uh, is about 40 percent so the so in fact the world uh, is 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 actually not is 40 percent less warm uh, than current measurements uh, suggest uh, it's been 40% warmer. It's 40% warmer than it um, suggests. And so that needs to be taken into account. And as Chris points out, and um, these scientists have said that one of the problems is that the IPCC and the and those who oversee the climate alarmist uh, narrative, they know full well that this is a, a problem that can affect it. And yet, when they adjust the temperatures, as they seem to quite frequently do these days, they adjust historic temperatures, they don't adjust them downwards as they should do to uh, compensate for this, this known effect, uh, this measurable effect, as we've 
we've seen in this paper, they in fact adjust them upwards and make it even worse. And so that would probably account, do you imagine, for some of the other 60% of the apparent warming. Not that the world hasn't warmed since 1850, uh, but it's very, very hard to know how much it's warmed. And certainly um, it looks like up to half of it, 40%, is just is simply due to where the thermometers um, are, so not genuine climatic warming at all. Yep. Uh, well, don't expect that to be reported anywhere other than in the Daily Skeptic. Uh, OK, well, Will, thank you very much indeed uh, uh, for telling us about our top stories of the week. Great. So that was Will. And I believe we have one more advert, actually, which I was going to read, which is a listener who's written in with an advert and paid for an advert, which we appreciate, for the country of Sri Lanka. This is quite an unconventional advert. So he says, I wonder what crosses your mind when you think of Sri Lanka, the little teardrop island just south of India. Back in 2019, Sri Lanka was voted Lonely Planet's number one travel destination. Then we had crippling lockdowns and our economy collapsed and even our politicians ran away. Crazy times. Now we're recovering, but we need to get tourists back. Here are just a few reasons why you should come and enjoy Sri Lanka. We have tuk-tuks and temples, but few masks and no pronouns. We absolutely love cricket and our tea, Ceylon tea, is the finest in the world. We're a right old mix of cultures and histories, Eastern and Western, ancient and current, great and small. You can spend $500 a night in luxury if you want, but you can also get a plate of fresh prawns with a decent local beer for a fiver and curries to die for. If you like sea and mountains, blue sky and warm sunshine every day, you'll be in the right place. Here, green is a color, woke is a verb, and jokes are funny. Sri Lankans are naturally very friendly. That's just how they are. We have whales and leopards and monkeys and elephants. And yes, snakes. You can learn to surf, go hill walking, do yoga, go Ayurvedic, work online, or just listen to the sounds of the jungle. Fly here overnight, direct from London, and feel the warm tropical vibe the moment you leave the plane. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon, especially Toby and Nick. Stay skeptical. So do we even actually have the name of who that came from, Toby, or are they anonymous? I think they. I think they'd like to remain anonymous. Okay, so um, go to Sri Lanka, guys. That's an advert. It sounds like we, t- we turned into the tourist board of Sri Lanka. Why not visit Sri Lanka? Sponsored by Bitcoin, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be Bitcoin. Though. It would definitely be Bitcoin because Sri Lanka sounds quite based from that description. Yeah. No, I think this is um, a listener who lives in Sri Lanka, really enjoys living much. in Sri Lanka. I got and, that as well. Um, yeah, and and thinks it's underrated and wants more people to visit. I couldn't um, possibly so, yeah. go because of the spicy food. So sorry, man in Sri Lanka. I assume it's a man, but um, just assume it just seems like it, it, it is a man. It um, is a man. Yeah. It, it's. I couldn't go because of the curries, and I never leave the country. I haven't left since 2017, uh, since I introduced all. You know. And then, then in 2020, I resolved, well, if you're just going to bring in COVID passports, I'll just never leave. Could you see yourself going to Sri Lanka, Toby? I could. I could see myself taking my family to Sri Lanka next summer. I could see um, you going a... to Sri Lanka with your family, doing a podcast in the middle of it. Has someone just come into your shed just now? No, the door just blew shut. I'd opened it because it's getting quite hot in my, in okay. my shed. Yeah, it's gonna, um, we're about to have so another heat wave. Just blew it's shut. It's going to be like Sri Lanka. We're in, the midst, we're in the midst of a heat wave, yeah. yeah. It's Sri Lanka. Yeah, it's going up to like 30-something in London, which is hellish. And especially when, when we won't be allowed air conditioning, 44 grams of meat in a mud hut. in 40, 30, It's going to go up to 34 degrees on Wednesday. Imagine that, Toby, with no air conditioning. Luckily, the heat pump will be so cold and broken that actually that'll help during the heat. You know, <laughs> in fact, we're not allowed proper heating either. Anyway, thank you for that Sri Lanka advert. Um, now let's go to everyone's favorite section. It is, of course, Peak Woke. 
So, Toby, a couple of great Pete Wokes this week. Do you want to start or, or me? Why don't I start? And um, I wanted to flag up the fate of someone called Carl Borgneal, um, a 57-year-old man who um, was, until recently, a loyal employee of Lloyds Bank. Um, uh, so he was a senior manager at Lloyds, uh, been there for 27 years. And in 2021, he was one of around 100 senior managers um, who was asked to take an online training session entitled Race Education for Line Managers, uh, inspired by um, uh, the need to have a, a more open conversation about race in the wake of George Floyd's death the year before. Um, so not unusual, um, and uh, particularly in the financial sector. Anyway, he, 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 uh, so he, he logged on and he was told by the um, trainer um, at the very beginning of this session, she said, when we talk about race, people often worry about saying the wrong thing. Please understand that today is your opportunity to practice, learn and be clumsy. The goal is to start talking, so please speak freely and forgive yourself and others when being clumsy today. So effectively, she said this was a safe space in which you could afford to be clumsy. Um, uh, don't worry about saying the wrong thing. Uh, so they, they then went on to have a conversation and they were talking about um, uh, intent versus effect and whether uh, intent is the important thing or effect is the important thing. And um, he, he asked how, as a line manager, he should handle a situation where he heard someone from uh, an ethnic minority background use, the word, use a word that might be considered offensive if used by a white person. I think a, you know, a perfectly reasonable, good faith question to which he wanted to know the answer. And she looked a bit puzzled didn't really understand what he meant. Uh, and uh, so he gave us an example, um, uh, uh, a black employee that he was managing using the N-word. Um, but um, uh, he actually used the N-word when giving this example. And um, instead of, you know, um, being given a pass because he'd been encouraged to ask clumsy questions and to speak freely and to not worry um, about saying the wrong thing, she immediately uh, started berating him, didn't answer the question. And then afterwards, um, uh, complained to the organization that had been employed by Lloyds to deliver this training and was so traumatized by having heard the N-word used by Carl uh, that she took five days off work. Um, and um, uh, Lloyds Bank, instead of dismissing this complaint, um, uh, investigated Carl and eventually dismissed him for gross misconduct. And um, he reached out to the Free Speech Union for help. And um, with our help, he took Lloyds to the Employment Tribunal. And last month, the panel um, not only upheld a finding of unfair dismissal, but he's also dyslexic. And he had um, a medical report saying that he because he's dyslexic, he sometimes blurt things out without thinking about the consequences. He sometimes speaks clumsily, which was supposed to be something that was allowed within this session. Um, so he also um, um, got a finding of dis disability discrimination. Um, and we don't yet know um, what size of compensation he's going to receive, but it looks like it's going to be fairly substantial. Um, but um, yeah, a shocking story, um, appalling behavior, I think.
by Lloyd's um, and um, another victory for the Free Speech Union. And just just to just to finish this particular story, um, if anyone listening to this hasn't yet joined the Free Speech Union and is um, has been thinking about joining, now is the time to join because we're putting up our membership fees um, from September 15th. Um, so you've got just over a week left to join at the current rate. And if you do join before we put them up, we will hold those fees in place for a year. So um, you won't be charged at the new rate until at least a year has passed since joining, provided you join before September 15th. And it is cheap as chips. You can join for as little as £2.40 a month if you're a veteran or on benefits or a student or a pensioner. Um, so please do consider joining. Um, it's still cheap as chips, but prices are going up a little bit on September 15th. So if you are thinking about joining, if you've been flirting with the idea, but putting it off, we just haven't got around to it. Now is the time to join. Join now. You'll pay at the current rate and that'll be fixed in place for at least a year. Okay. We normally do that, but at the end, you squeeze in a little, a little extra ad there, but it is the Free Speech Union. And yeah. And I didn't realize they were involved in this case because it wasn't in the, in the paper. We covered it on headliners. And he did say that his dyslexia affected his ability to construct carefully formulated questions. Did you mention that bit? I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah. I didn't I didn't quite understand how, but I totally sympathize with him. The woman seems absolutely awful to say it's a safe space and launch into a vitriolic attack. And she reminded me somewhat of Kendrick Lamar, who invited a woman on stage. She started singing his lyrics. Then when she said that word, which is in the lyrics, he then stopped and berated her for that, which seemed to me it was a remarkably uncharitable thing to do. And anyway, it's an it's an absurd situation anyway to have one group of people who just says the word repeatedly as much as they can, and everyone else, if they say it, can lose their job immediately. It's just not a tenable way to live. It's a, it's this weird control thing. Well, and also, it also it does throw up, um, I think, um, you know, a genuine question about um, what you should do if you know if 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 a black person uses that word in your presence in the workplace and you've been told as their line manager that the use of such language is inappropriate, do you reprimand them? Do you report them to HR or not? I mean, it's a perfectly fair question, given that it is acceptable for black Britons to use it, but not for white Britons. Um, but, you know, um, according to this woman, that was completely out of order. Uh, we do warn people at the Free Speech Union that if you are, um, uh, if at the beginning of a kind of diversity training session, you're told this is a safe space, say whatever you like, doesn't leave the room, that's a red flag. Yeah. Be on your metal it's if you say not. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel bad for this guy. Disgusting. But I'm glad that you're helping him out. And hopefully it's a, it's all ends well. And so should we do my peak woke, which is that Bond was trending. And as you pointed out, actually, the new Bond book from Charlie Hickson was published in May. But for some reason, it's been trending now. So I thought we could do it now as a peak woke. And uh, people have been sharing these extracts from the book. And this was a, a, a brilliant one. So they're talking about Hungary. Bond's talking about Hungary in the book. And it says which is why Bond felt a deep sense of gloom that this beautiful, civilized, orderly country had been dragged back towards the far right by Viktor Orban, using the crude but effective nationalist playbook, stirring Hungarians up with his anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and crude make-hungry-great-again anti-immigration rhetoric. He'd lined himself with the likes of Trump and Le Pen and Putin, and just like them, he was using a paper front of patriotism to mask rampant self-interest. In this uncertain world, the age-old lure of the strongman held an irresistible appeal to all those who felt left behind and bewildered by change. So this strange remainer kind of plea in the middle of the book. And as further examples of this, uh, here's a particularly absurd one. Yes, said Bond wearily, it'd be worth it just for that. 
the so so someone says to him the let's at least we'll bring back the good old imperial measurements. But anyway, Bond says yeah wearily. But then it says apart from using miles, Bond had never known imperial measurements. I mean, how how young is this Bond? Because I haven't lived with imperial measurements. Pounds and ounces, feet and inches, shillings and threepenny bits and guineas meant nothing to him. What did he care? The metric system seemed to make a lot more sense. But that wasn't what this twit wanted to hear. Just hilarious. Remainer, midwit Remainer centrist dadism. And here's another one, Toby. One more from Bond. Burkitt was an ex-Tory MP famous for promoting COVID vaccines, mask-wearing 5G conspiracy theories, which had spilled over into the usual anti-immigrant, anti-EU, anti-BBC, anti-MSN, anti-cultural Marxist, climate change denial pronouncements. It was an anti-trans diatribe that had eventually got him kicked out of the party and had soon after set up the New Freedom Party. So there are these constant little jibes in there. So the new bond is a sort of FBPE Partridge, someone put it as, which I thought was quite good. A sort of Alan Partridge, who crossed with FBP, crossed with a centrist dad, midwit Remainer. The name's Bond, and I'm drinking drinking an IPA craft ale, do you think, instead of a, a martini, and, and probably going on about the common fisheries policy. What do you think? Yeah, no, it did seem... Um, uh... To turn Bond into a centrist dad who probably listens to you know the rest is politics, um, it was was um, uh, it seems like it seems like you know a pretty egregious departure from the original. Um, but um, as Ed West pointed out, um, I think I think Bond Bond's meant to be kind of perpetually about thirty five. He doesn't age, you know. He's he's a sort of ageless um, archetype superhero type um and um and and actually a 35 year old um employee of mi6 probably would hold those views today that probably wouldn't be remotely unusual that's probably just an example of charlie higson's social realism um uh, ed 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 west made this point and um, he wrote he wrote a piece about this on his Substack, which i highly recommend by the way um he said um bond defends the institutional values of his era on the day that putin started the war in ukraine the head of mi6 was tweeting about lgbt month prevent set up to monitor jihadis at war with britain increasingly increasingly focuses on small c conservatives followers of the old religion whose views are more genuinely subversive to multicultural britain than any islamist um and um yeah, it's 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 uh, you know I think for, for Bond fans like me, um, it does feel sacrilegious um, to turn Bond into um, you know a cross between um, uh, Rory and Alistair. Um, but um, it's sort of understandable, you know, part of the job of these people who are employed by the owners of the Ian Fleming literary estate to kind of churn out these bond books long after Ian Fleming's death they, they, your job is to update and make more contemporary bond and the, the movies have been doing it up to a point um and um uh, so it's sort of understandable you know um uh, another point ed west makes is that you know people like people like us often complain when um people we think of as kind of cultural icons 
um, of, you know, um, olden times, um, uh, you know, the old religion, which we which we still worship when they're when they're subverted, when they're kind of claimed by followers of the new religion, we get quite upset and uh, and feel as though they're trespassing on our values. They're encroaching on people we consider sacred and trying to kind of kidnap them. Um, but um, actually, this is this has long been a feature, Ed West points out, of kind of um, uh, 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 new religious movements. So when the Christians first appeared, they they tried to claim all these kind of heroic Romans as kind of uh, Christian icons and Christian saints. So maybe it's just it's just it's just you know it's just it's just the predictable behavior of the kind of high priests of the woke religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did think I was going to go on to say that yes, there's an argument. That's how someone now in MI five and so on would think. You know, there is an mm. argument for that. I doubt that was Hickson's intention. I think he's probably is just proselytizing for his own views, I suspect. But maybe, if you want to give him a lot of credit, I mean, does that mean Bond just sort of, instead of getting all these hot girls, it just sort of, you know, his wife has to let him out to play football and stuff? Because he sounds a lot like the people I know in, in North London. But, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I think, so my argument against what you said, Toby, would be this. Bond himself as a character, while he is part of the system, he doesn't completely adhere to the system and he's a bit of a maverick. He's not a total maverick, but he's a bit of a maverick. And he could stand against the prevailing culture. There's one of the books, I don't know which, but my friend always used to share the passage with me where he complains about sissy men who have sort of Mm. become very common. And it's a quite sort of prescient take on how men have become more feminized. He doesn't approve of it. So it is possible for Bond to not approve of things. So couldn't he be working for them saying, oh, they had me investigating this and that, but I thought it was all nonsense. Couldn't he, wouldn't that equally be in, in keeping with Bond? Yes, that, that I think actually that would make for a much more entertaining book if he was a kind of, you know, unreconstructed, old school, you know, um, masculine man um, and having to kind of pretend to be, you know, um, much more feminine and in touch with his feminine side and kind of therapized than he really should. Like basically a kind of Prince Andrew pretending to be Prince Harry. Maybe that's not fair on, on Bond to describe the originals being like pretending, but you know, Prince Philip. you get the idea. I think that, that would be, that would be yeah, Prince Philip pretending to be Prince Harry. That would be, that would be, that could be much more entertaining and, you know, much more fun to write as well. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's Bond. I mean, it, it does sound like it sucks. And I think Higson just wants to think he's Bond in his head, even though he's just a, clearly a centrist dad. But that's peak woke. Should we go on and, and review the reviews? This very popular Review the section. reviews. Yeah, I keep threatening yeah. to not do it, but people just keep asking for it. So I'm going to have to do it. And let me just see where we got to last time. So did we did we read out this one that said Skeptacular? I can't remember. The orange pill we definitely talked about. Let's read this good one first. So London Calling's bigger, better, older. It cuts off there. I'm guessing it's going to say older brother or something. It says, I've been a casual listener for a while. The demise of London Calling sent me further into the weekly skeptic. Actually, this one isn't that. This one's quite annoying, but I'll read it anyway. Toby deserves a medal for not losing his rag on London Calling. I was previously Team James, but the funniest guy from off the telly standing for Nigel Farage is quite good. I reckon with a bit of work, he could maybe do comedy or set up a political party to rival the Tories with Lord Frost. I reckon he could easily lick the envelope. So I see what you've done there. You've tried to be funny, and at least you've referenced things in the episode. So I'm going to let you off because it's an attempt to be funny. I'm not going to do a scathing attack on that one, but it's clearly a bit of a diss to me. You come out very well out of that one, Toby. Maybe I should then read one where you don't come out as well, but I'm not sure. Let me know. I don't don't have to read this. This one, I warn you, starts with Toby shouldn't dot, dot, dot. That's the title. So already... You're worried. How many? How many? St- how, those aren't stars. Those five are stars. Dots. How many? 
These are all five stars. So it's Toby shouldn't. You think this is bad, but it's not too bad. Ever talk about American politics? He's got absolutely no idea what's going on. (laughs) What do you think, Toby? Too harsh? Did you want to defend yourself? It sounds like he's a defender of the steel conspiracy theory. The steel fact. Yeah, someone else says, I love listing interesting, knowledgeable, topical, and occasionally witty. What more could we ask for? Thanks for creating this content. I appreciate it. I can't remember if we read that one before. Someone's done a weekly skeptic script generator, which is like an AI. I'll read it. It's quite annoying, but I'll read it. It said, it is five stars. It says, Top G followed me on Twitter. My tweet got 500 likes. I hate reviewers. Dylan Mulvaney is a she. Top G DM'd me. James Dellingpole isn't as good as me. My tweet got 700 likes. The show isn't long. Did I say Top G followed me? Give me five stars. Top G followed me. Now it gives it five stars, and I think it's based on something we said, so I don't mind that one. I'm going to let that one off as well. Being very, very nice. Um, let me see. Did we read this one? This one's really good about me, so let's read this one because that, was not, that wasn't as nice about me. Skeptacular. This comes from North Norfolk Duo. That seems like an Alan Partridge reference. Uh, North Norfolk. Absolutely love this podcast. We discovered this via London Calling, RIP, and never miss an episode. Fun mix of banter, politics, and common sense critique of the culture wars. Hurrah! Also very chuffed, I introduced my husband to this podcast and Nick's The Current Thing. Well worth checking out. Keep it up, guys. Hope we get to one of your live shows soon. So there you, there you go. It's about as nice as it gets. We thank you for your reviews and your coffees that you bought on Buy Me A Coffee, which maybe I should read out in future as well. So, Toby, some pretty good ones there, except for that one. Yeah, pretty nice. On your American yeah. politics stuff. But. Yeah, I maybe I steer away from American politics. Um, yeah, I don't think we didn't have anything on American politics this week. So um, We had Proud Boys. That, pretty tangential. But I suppose, yeah, we did. Um, yeah, no, not bad. Happy with those. Um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm less sensitive to the reviews than you are. But uh, they seem like a pretty, yeah, pretty good selection. All right. Well, another two-hour episode. We tried to do an hour and a half. We failed again, Toby. In future, we're going to do an hour and a half, yeah. and then I think we're going to keep the – for the hardcore fans, we'll keep a bit longer as paid content. That's our plan anyway. We keep announcing plans because yeah. then it holds you to them. But, uh, yeah, anyway, it's another long episode. Anything to add? Oh, yeah, go to buymeacoffee.com slash and if you feel like supporting me. Go to the current thing. We just had a brilliant episode with Simon Evans, and before that we had that brilliant episode with Paul Coleman talking about the very much free speech case of Pi B. Razzano. The Simon Evans one was great, as you'd expect, if you know Simon – We've got some very interesting ones coming up throughout September. So make sure you listen to the current thing. I can't see why you wouldn't listen to it if you're listening to this. There's really no excuse. But we are doing very well with the numbers. About half of you have gone across. So we just need the, the other half. Toby, anything you want to add? Uh, yeah, just um, if you enjoy the content of The Daily Skeptic, please go there and um, become a monthly subscriber for just £5. You can then comment underneath um, our pieces, and there's always a lively debate going on in the comments. And you can support the site and all the people we employ to bring you such high-quality content every day. Um, and please do, if you're thinking about joining the Free Speech Union join before friday september 15th because at that point membership dues are due to go up and if you do join before that date we'll freeze the price for um at least a year um and um if you just join as a monthly member it's really cheap we prefer it obviously if you join as an annual member helps us more and you can either join as a discount member a full member or a gold member ideally join as a gold member but if uh, you can't afford that, join as a full member. And if you can't afford that, join as a discount member. Uh, but please do join before September 15th if you want to join at the current rate. All right. So that's and a... I should just oh. say, sorry, I should just say www.freespeechunion.org forward slash join forward slash. Okay. So that's a year done of the Weekly Skeptic. Pretty cool. We started from nothing. We've got over 20,000 
dedicated listeners a week. Very hard to get on audio, so we appreciate you all. And imagine how much bigger it can get in the next year if we've done that in one year. The mind boggles, Toby. We're going to double that in the next year. And um, we're going to knock the rest is politics off the top spot on the Apple podcast charts. Take out the Lineker industrial complex. Yeah, absolutely. All right. But until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.